The following episode was recorded before the untimely death of Daphne. Obviously, we'll sort of touch on her career within this episode. Just to say that she's been one of the highlights of WCW in these episodes of 2000 that we've reviewed. It's been an absolute joy to go back and have a look at her career. And it's just a tragedy. And our thoughts are with her family at this time. Welcome to Unbooking the Territories. We continue our journey through the highest and slowest TV rated episodes of the Monday Night Wars for each creative period. This week sees Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff's lowest rated episode. I'm back! <laughs> what a pretty hey! picture. What a pretty picture. You guys, I love you guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vince Russo and I am the Antichrist of professional wrestling. Your Honor, my client, Eric Bischoff, isn't What an opening statement! You cheered that, but you see, Eric Bischoff is not your friend. Eric Bischoff does not get paid to be your friend. Eric Bischoff gets paid to deliver the most exciting show in sports entertainment week after week, and that's exactly what he has done for four years. From day one that I've been in WCW, I've done nothing, nothing but deal with the bullshit of the politics behind that curtain. Vince Russo and I have more in common than anybody knows. But the big thing is the fact that we were both screwed by the same good old boys network. How are you this week, Dan? I'm not awful. I'm on the come down a little bit. I've had a bit of a frazzling end to the day. Late out of work, got stuck in uh, York Races traffic. Late walking the dog, had to mess around picking various people's cars up and being the uh, the designated driver. But pizza and beer and the prospect of talking wrestling have set me right. How are you, mate? I'm good. In a previous life, I used to go to an annual training course in York, and the third-party company that provided it insisted on going on the York Races weekend because I think they wanted to go to York Races and have the hotels paid for, etc. So mm. it was half the cost the next year to do it on a non-York uh, races weekend and then it was half again to do it in Leeds so we ended up saving our money <laughs> the downside being that you have to be in Leeds well I mean if, if you're stuck in a hotel uh, boardroom or whatever you know going through powerpoint presentations does it really matter where you are fair point now if it was spreadsheets on the other hand then you need a proper setting with a nice decent view and just to set the whole ambience you know light a few candles Rose petals, draw a bath. I don't even know what I'm bollocking on about now. This is how fucking fried my brain is. Yeah, we've got a guest this week. I first met him when he was uh, when he was just glad he was just a wee little glass collector in me local, and then he started slinging pints, and then I found out he liked wrestling, so beer and wrestling. That's pretty much guaranteed to make him my friend. It's uh, Cam Wild. How are you doing, mate? I am all right. Although I will point out that I I only got into wrestling because of you. I had forgotten that fact. Yeah, no, I remember just like <laughs> chilling in living room with with Emmy one day, just like channel hopping, and then they had WWE superstars on Sky One, you know, that hour clip show basically of the week. 
sum up and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> Dan and Woody talk about this. Oh, okay, I'm, I guess I guess I'm a fan now, <laughs> and I just I've, I've watched like 15 hours of wrestling a week ever since. <laughs> <laughs> drawn in by WWE superstars, there won't be many people who can say that. That is true. Well, drawn in by the great Dan Griffin. Well, naturally, naturally, <laughs> and my incessant bullshitting about it. It's almost as if he threatened you to watch it, like Tank Abbott would threaten someone to dance. <laughs> Don't actually bring that up because I might have done. I was in a lot of questionable states in that pub. Yeah, seems that I've seen some compro- compromising positions. Let's put it like that. That reminds me, I need to get you to sign that NDA. Yeah. <laughs> so, Cam, when people normally go on podcasts, they'll ask how people got into wrestling, but we've, we've actually already heard your origin story. We, we try and cut those sort of things out, but you, you managed to get in there before we had a chance to stop you. Fucked up already. I'm just ahead of the game, mate. You knew we weren't going to ask, so you got in there. So we've given you some homework about the five factors that you look for when you're watching wrestling and how you prioritise those. So what's your most important? Well, for me, it's the in-ring is number one. Like, if the, I, maybe that comes from my main exposure to WWE coming in the past five years of content. But no matter how bad like the storytelling or the build's been i mean you just got got to trust the wrestlers to be wrestlers at the end of the day aren't you and everything can come together i mean you look at that wrestlemania main event with charlotte flair becky lynch ronda rousey don't know how they managed to botch a build like that with three incredible talents but at the end of the day they're always going to deliver on the night aren't they yeah, yeah i thought they did we don't talk about the finish. Um, second out of the five for me is probably promos, to be fair. For me, promos... I mean, just, there are so many talented wrestlers, but promo is such a different skill set that it's it's a Venn diagram, in it? There's types of wrestlers that can cut a promo, types of wrestlers that can do it in the ring. So with them being the top two, such like a, a small Venn diagram... And touch wood, we're seeing one of them tonight, aren't we? <laughs> For reference, we are recording when uh, AEW Rampage in Chicago is about to air, so there's either going to be a load of jubilant AEW fans or a load of salty AEW fans. <laughs> to be honest, if, if Drew Gulak came out and put a PowerPoint presentation on the screen with a Venn diagram, I'd be more than happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd be down for that. Although, <laughs> Tony Khan very subtly... Adam Cole, whose contract apparently ran out after the last takeover. And Tony Khan's teased Adam Cole, so just throwing that one out there as well. <laughs> Next up is one that would have probably been lower two years ago, but fan response. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's something that it's very easy to take for granted. But two years of watching people wrestle in an empty gym, <laughs> and then we got that big WrestleMania return. It was goosebumps, you know, and it's the same deal across the board, you know, football, the the works. I think it's even more so for football, to be fair. Football without fans at times has just been just dire and really difficult to watch. Yeah. But as soon as you got fans back, it was, it's been great. Yeah. Well, I was, I was at Anfield for the first two games back in front of fans 
two games in two days. I've still got your scarf for you. Um, yeah, but I'll ball wash that after I've picked it up and since you're in the plague house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, big red X on door and everything. I know, I painted it. <laughs> yeah. uh, next up, fourth. Again, this probably feels quite harsh putting this quite low, but storyline... For the reasons that I touched on with number one being the in-ring, you know, at the end of the day, if the match delivers, if the payoff delivers, it doesn't really matter necessarily how you got there. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule, like what Hangman Adam Page is doing in AEW and things like that. But the storyline, I feel like it's a vehicle. It's not necessarily the only way you can get to get to a great match. Yeah, finally would be presentation. In number five, uh, one of the few things that WWE do consistently well on a week-in, week-out basis is they present their wrestlers like stars, even if they don't always do it in the matches or in the storylines. Your vignettes and your production values and the commentary, they sell everything amazingly. But I feel like the wrestlers that are over are going to get themselves over regardless of what you do in a vignette, regardless of how your production is regardless of what they say on commentary. I feel like the ones who are going to be over will get over regardless. And I mean, you see it time after time, you know, people that have been given nothing. And uh, was it Keith Lee's pounce on Adam Cole in NXT, where he was given literally just said, push Adam Cole and sent him three <laughs> rows back into the crowd. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. It was. And, and it's funny that you say that, being at CM Punk Eve, that <laughs> I remember CM Punk cutting a promo in his rival with John Cena leading up to Money in the Bank about how he didn't need any of the you know ring entrance and ring yeah. music, all that sort of stuff. He, he could just get over by being in the ring. Mm. You know, there, there are definitely some that can do that. I guess the flip side is the people in NXT, because NXT is really good at giving people entrances. I mean, you look at Ty Dillinger, and he had an amazing entrance. Uh, and now is Sean Spears, who's just got a set of lapels hanging over his shoulders. Yeah, I'm not not Sean Spears guy, if I'm honest. But uh, Adam Cole said something similar, uh, cutting a promo on Karrion Cross a few months ago. Was, what was it he said? Uh, it's like, you got the girl, you got the entrance, you got the music. You know what they do to make Adam Cole feel special? They ring the damn bell. Karrion Cross is damn special. He is damn special. But I don't, I don't think he's got it in the ring necessarily. I think his presentation is phenomenal. But akin to my list, I just I don't think he's got it too much in a ring. I think he get, I think he's one of, he's a Goldberg type. He looks great and he acts the part. But I just I, I think anything more than ten minutes and it exposes his weaknesses. You haven't seen him be let go yet in a in, a, in his in what he can actually do. It, it's been very, very held back so far. That's all I'll say. I, w- I was really hot on him in Impact when I, I used to. When he was in Impact, I used to watch it on a weekly basis. I probably still should, but who has the time? Uh, um, okay, who else apart from Dan has the time? <laughs> I watched it on. The, I watched it on YouTube at double speed this week. If that counts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, too far. I probably could watch it because I don't bother watching Raw anymore. God knows, Jesus. It's interesting seeing how your um, your sort of priorities line up there, Cam, because you know you are, as you say, you are. You only got into wrestling in the last five years, as we all do. Generally, started out very WWE focused. Mm. So it's interesting to see how that sort of uh, that sort of shaped your list. You are up. I didn't start out with WWE. I'm too old for that. I said, I said <laughs> most of us. 
To be well, fair, I started out with WWF. So. Just because you started out with, with George Hackenschmidt and Carl Gotch. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> but it's, it's a definitely a neat distribution. We very rarely get people on the show who put the actual in-ring wrestling as the top priority. That's only the fourth time that's happened. You're going against our mantra of the least important part of the wrestling being the wrestling. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like it's something that I've only just really come to appreciate in the past few years. That, uh, and p- to be fair, possibly since, you know, the likes of the Hangman Adam Page storyline, you know, with Kenny Omega and how long that's gone on and how much the in-ring has affected storylines. Tommaso Ciampa is another one that's great with just telling his stories in the ring, you know. It's something that, like I say, growing up with SmackDown and Raw, more so recently with the Roman Reigns character, but it's something that you don't really see a whole lot of, or any of in Raw, unless you count dolls. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I think it speaks more to the lack of sort of memorable storytelling in in what you were watching than the way they've panned out. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. So it looks like everyone's drinking... How much y'all guess what you're drinking? I have rum from Brew York on the go. It's called Tonkoko. It's based off a stout that they do. Became a rum guy halfway through lockdown because I was drinking a can of beer watching the football. Halfway through, I was like, I don't like this. I don't know why I'm drinking this. Put that can down and I've never touched beer since. (laughs) I've been a spirit guy since, picked up rum and never gone back <laughs> um i like my other spirits as well but uh, this one just tastes like cake it's my favorite rum of all time fantastic yeah. do you know why because it's based on beer <laughs> best of fair all play. worlds fair play I, I did make a hand gesture then then realized this is an audio podcast <laughs> a digit was raised in my direction i'll leave it to you guys <laughs> to figure out whether it was a thumbs up or a middle finger or a finger gun <laughs> The only thing I know about rum is that um, when Leicester won the league, uh, Wes Morgan got sponsored by Captain Morgan's rum. And if you saw Wes Morgan in a bar and shouted Captain at him, he had to buy you a Captain Morgan's rum. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when Wes Morgan stopped going out. (laughs) Is that why you've got a restraining order against him? Yeah. (laughs) That's why he's got a completely separate. (laughs) (laughs) What are you drinking, Dan? Uh, I've been back to my friends at Hopper Clock to get Boston Stout called We Put Our Love in This from Merakai Brewing Company. The name sounded a little bit dirty and the can art's quite good. So I picked that up and I've never heard of a Boston Stout before. And it's actually very nice. Rich, smooth, bit chocolatey, little bit of caramel. Not half bad. And then I'm going to, for my next one, going to Truth Hurts Brew Co. Uh, for one of their Rebel Lagers, uh, 4.2%. And then I've got a Marshmallow and Peanut Ice Cream Stout from Play Brew Co. Uh, I've not tried any of their beers before, so I'm looking forward to it. That one is uh, 6%. Good stuff. Uh, well, the Beer 52 Fairies came yesterday, and being it's CM Punk Eve, apparently, although it, it may be the day that AEW use all the goodwill with the audience if he doesn't turn up, there was a Chicago box. Hey. 
somebody class. at um, Beer 52 is playing a joke. And they've got one in here. But the first one I had while we were recording, I finished it now, was a coffee American brown ale called Coffee Friends from Temperance Brewery. So I thought, is this going to be zero alcohol because it's CM Punk? Because they've actually got a little logo that looks like CM Punk's shorts with the Chicago flag on it. Mm. But uh, no, yeah. it's uh, 5.6%. It's just a can of Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> I'm currently on a Chicago IPA called L Train, and that's from Cruz uh, Blanca Craft uh, Mexican Cerveza Brewery. And then I'm going to go on to Flannel Pajamas, which is an oatmeal stout from Beguile. And that's a 5.4% stout. So they're all Chicago beers that I'm drinking tonight in honour of CM Punk Eve. Very nice. I have actually had that box already. So they must have held one back for you. They thought, Rob's podcasting on the same night CM Punk's coming back. We'll get that to him. Top work, Beer 52. Well, I think it depends what day you signed up, doesn't it? Uh, hit, hit lucky no, on no. them. No, they knew. Now they, sponsor us. They knew. They, but what, what would CM Punk like? Alcohol. That's what they thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, somebody else to get the alcohol away from him. Oh, good point, and I'm more than happy to take it. <laughs> Don't we ship all this out of Chicago quickly. <laughs> so now it's time for the beer sommelier section of the show, where uh, the listeners can sit back and relax, and hopefully still be the virtual Jade Cargill, and we'll be the virtual Smart Mark Sterling and recommend a beer they should drink. But uh, they've been quite quiet on the promos about whether he's a sommelier or not. He said he was going for training, so we just have to take it on faith. So, Cam, as you're the guest, is there anything that you'd recommend that people should drink while they're watching this episode of Nitro? Yeah, the rum that I'm drinking, I recommend that. Not only drinking that during Nitro, every time you have a drink, I recommend it being Tong Coco by Brew York. £38 a bottle. Best rum you'll ever have. Pour it on your cereal. Go nuts. Exactly, exactly. Put it in your tea. Instead of milk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just just finish it off. That's the thing about tea. You, you, mostly you want the water, but just just finish it off with a little bit of tongue cocoa. Bone apple teeth. <laughs> what would you recommend, Dan? I actually went back and, and made a link with this one because I saw it was this episode was from Virginia, and I seem to remember drinking a rather nice beer from Virginia Brook Beer Company, uh, which I did. It was called Elbow Patches. It was a six point two percent oatmeal stout. And I got it in a beer 52 box. Uh, I gave it a good 3.5 on untapped. So if you can find elbow patches by Virginia Beer Company, get some of that. Excellent. Beer 52 was getting all the shout outs this evening. I'm going to go for Royal Lager, which is a 4.9% lager from Kirby Longsdale Brewery. I'm going for Royal Lager because essentially they had either a Battle Royal or Royal Rumble type gauntlet situation at the end of the show. So a little bit of a tie in there. So now it's time for Beth's Beer of the Week. And Beth's Beer of the Week is North-South Divide by Salt Brew Factory. So Beth's Beer of the Week there was North-South Divide by Salt Brewing Factory. It's a 7.4% IPA. It's one that uh, Beth gave two out of five to an untapped. I gave two and a half and Generous Dan gave 3.25. I know, I drank that one when I was, uh, when I was around at yours last week. I thought it was rather nice, although we did get through a fair few, so I may have just been pissed by that point. You weren't pissed, Dan, you just ruined your palate. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to call it from now on. I'm, while I'm slurring, stumbling, all the rest of it, I'm not pissed, I've, I've just ruined my palate. 
I'm sorry I've thrown up on that, my palate. And, and uh, I'm just shitting that plant pot, but it's because I ruined my palate. Exactly. So the episode that we're covering today is Russo and Bischoff's lowest rated episode. As we'd mentioned before, there was a period where they were working quite well together. Then they fell out over the Lex Luger, Miss Elizabeth Kimberley situation and they both went home. So the last creative team was the one night only Bill Banks, Terry Taylor and Ed Ferrara, who who got a 2.7. This next period where Russo and Bischoff are working together only lasts two weeks. And they're working from home at that. So it was a 2.8 on the first one. And the episode reviewing today is a 2.3. So an average of 2.55. And that's going to compare to when Russo goes off on his own in sole charge of creative and the ratings go back up to 2.81. In terms of the ratings, I was sort of looking through the spreadsheet and I noticed that both Raw and Nitro had gone down. So Nitro had gone from 2.8 to 2.3. And Raw had gone from 6.4 to 5.3. So it's about 18%. And I looked it up, and it's the only time that both shows go down so much together. Normally, if Nitro's down, Raw's up, or if Raw's down, Nitro's up. In fact, in the entire war, Nitro only went down four times when Raw also went down. Raw only went down six times when Nitro went down. So there was only 10 times when there's a possibility of this happening. And this is the biggest dip. So I was thinking, you know, what on earth happened? So I was looking through. There were no major news stories on this day. No major sporting events. It was actually the day after the Euro 2000 final, which uh, France beat Italy 2-1 and a golden goal in Holland. But I can't imagine many Americans watching that on the replay the following night. And there was no major TV competition from the four major networks. In fact, if you compare week to week with those, the four major networks were down 24%. So I can People only... just decided to go outside. Well, I can only <laughs> assume that as the 4th of July is a bank holiday, everyone's getting pissed on the 3rd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could go along with that logic. If we apply some British logic to the Americans, yeah, they'll have been just shit-hammered. Yeah. That's all I can think. It's a low episode, but the whole of TV was low for this week, so who knows. So the episode that we're reviewing today was on the 3rd of July 2000. It emanated from the Civic Centre in Charleston, West Virginia. Whenever I see one of these shows emanating from the Civic Centre, I always think of that show I went to at uh, at Castleford Civic Centre, where there was a sign above the Orionals saying, do not drink the water. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that was I think that was one that I was looking at going uh, to with you, but then some there was some Liverpool game on. You bought tickets for that. I actually sat in a seat that said uh, reserved for Dan Griffin. That's the one. It was the night that Liverpool won the Champions League, I believe. It was. It was. But if you're in Castleford, don't drink the urinal water. Or do because it's probably better than the actual tap water. <laughs> It reminds me of uh, when I went to the last rise show in Leeds. Me and my brother were sat in a bar and went to the toilet, and there was a sign above the sink that said, "It's rather you'd rather come in the sink than sink in the cum." So, so wow. another little bit of life advice for you. Okay. My favourite bit of toilet graffiti. It's not one I saw live. It's just like someone took a photo of it and put it on the internet, and now it's famous. It was just a little poem that someone had written. And it said, here I sit, broken-hearted, came to shit, but only farted. And then underneath it, somebody else had written, 
And later on, I took a chance, tried to fart and shit my pants. <laughs> I'm convinced that the Charleston Civic Centre is probably a classier joint than all these places that we've been referencing. I don't know, it is West Virginia. It is. There's no record for what the attendance was for this show. The capacity of the arena is 11,519. The highest recorded wrestling show was WCW sold out in the arena at 10,853. And they'd been in for a house show on the 14th of January for 5,970 people. So that's only six months prior. So there were a good few thousand in, definitely. I'd say it was a rough guess because it's almost impossible to guess these things with you know with the camera angles and you can't see who's behind you know behind the hard cam. But there were definitely a good few thousand in. Oh there yeah. Annoy- there was an, an annoying almost like a third of a row of empty seats right opposite hard cam that kept distracting me. I was just looking at it, just just move people down. It was like a AAA show because they only came in for like the main event. They must have been drinking in the concourse and then they just came in right at the end. I've never understood that. Like whenever I've been to a boxing event, I want to watch the undercard. I've paid for the ticket. I want to watch me some boxing. I'll go for a beer between fights, whatever. But I want to watch the show. I want to get my money's worth. Yeah, I get that. It's yeah. like the, I, the people I see at football games like drinking like 10 minutes into the second half because they've got a pint at half time. Like, why? Yeah, Nick, yeah. get the foot back to your seat and exactly. watch the footy. Yeah, it's bizarre. So now it's time to go through our five memorable moments from the show, whether it be good, bad, or just talking points. So, Cam, as you're the guest, what was your first one? One of the most beautiful commentary calls I've ever heard in my entire life which was, Major Guns has unleashed her explosive devices. <laughs> <laughs> was that Mark Madden by any chance? <laughs> Honestly, like... Yeah, it was Mark Madden, Dan. I fucking hate Mark Madden. I, d- I just kept thinking about Jerry the King Lawler throughout the entirety of <laughs> of basically every women's segment. I was like, they've just got King on commentary. Although no, King King at this point is actually much much worse. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Like, uh, like, over, like over on no, over on Raw, he is so much worse. Yeah, I've seen I've seen plenty of clips. What's it? <laughs> where did they, Was it a schoolgirl battle royale or something where they all where all the divas came out in schoolgirl clothes and he was like, I want to go back to school. Like that's that's not the compliment you think it is, King. That is nonce. <laughs> if if you well if you believe certain allegations that have uh, cropped up about King over the years. Yeah. I don't want to say any more in case I get sued. <laughs> in fairness to Mark Madden's level of skeeviness, I did actually watch some of Bash at the Beach until the network refused to work. And the wedding gown match between Daphne and Miss Hancock, Mark Madden has stepped up the skeeviness a bit. Although, on the other side of it, Tony Schiavone was really surprised that there was actually some wrestling in a wedding ground match. It was like, I, I, I didn't expect we'd see technical wrestling in a wedding gown match. <laughs> <laughs> We've described a lot of things as, as sort of typically Russo in terms of, you know, sprinkling the storylines throughout the show and, and a lot of really positive stuff, but it, it does get hard to ignore that he very much bought into the, the sex sell side of things on both Raw and Nitro. Yeah, it's an unfortunate sort of characteristic of this era 
I mean, both sides are doing it. That last episode of Raw that we yeah. watched. I actually did watch the Raw that went head-to-head with this show as part of the um, investigation into why the hell the ratings have gone down. That Raw actually does avoid a lot of that, in all fairness to it, uh, and is actually a, a really decent show. If anyone wants to go and watch that, I think they acquitted themselves much Fair better enough. than we covered them. Yeah. But again, it's, it's like I said, this isn't to excuse any of the skeeviness and, and all that, but it was very much a sign of the times. It's what people yeah. wanted to see. It was culturally and socially acceptable to do you know do these things to try and pop a rating we should probably mention the match that this was involved in so this was the mark jindrak and sean o'hare versus corporal cajun who was formerly known as lash larue and general hugh g rection uh, the former hugh morris <coughs> and they're accompanied by uh, major guns in this match I have to put in my notes, you know, when I saw Jindrak and O'Hare at this stage in the career, I was thinking, oh, God, this is going to be awful. It was better than I thought it was going to be, given that I knew they weren't great. Yeah. It was obvious there were, you know, two young guys starting out, but they were for, I'd, just, I'd forgotten just how athletic they both were and just for the size of them, the way they could move was really bloody impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, they actually said on commentary that... They were only sort of six months into it, and that included the time at the power plant. Yeah, graduated the power plant in six months. Yeah. Which is mental. But what did you think of it, Cam? I'm going to be honest with you, I spent most of it laughing about that line. I thought, well, the finish to the match was my, my main toll point, where I was like, why did everyone sell for 10 seconds, and then just everyone stood right back up again and started beating down? This isn't an AEW you- podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob with the AEW shade on Punk Massive. <laughs> Mate, I just like wrestling at the end of the day. I I don't get the whole territory shtick. I guess uh, you'd call tr- it the tribal, the tribal, the tribalism shit. exactly. And I'm I, and I'm a football fan, man. <laughs> like, and I don't get the tribalism when it comes to wrestling. <laughs> and I'm the most tribal <laughs> Liverpool fan you'll find. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm, a, I'm a Liverpool fan, and it's quite annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like ridiculously tribal, like probably too much for my own sake, and I'm just like watching, like just watch wrestling. <laughs> like, I completely agree, but I do reserve the right to point out the massive flaws with every wrestling promotion I watch. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, more yeah. or less what I've done with this show. But to be fair, it was yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> As long as you're doing it across the board and it's it's on a level playing field. Oh, and Cam, I, I, ju- I just picked up on what you said there about this being really bad. You sweet summer child. <laughs> you, have, you, you have not seen bad. I don't know. I'm pretty sure we're going to see Eva Marie fight a doll tomorrow night. Better than some of the stuff we've watched for this show. <laughs> yeah. It is. Honestly, I've always said the only thing for me that's better than phenomenal wrestling it's the worst wrestling you've ever seen. Yeah, if, if it completely goes the other way... and, and Completely it, other side. It's one end of the spectrum or the other for me. Middling, I'll just get bored. But one end of the spectrum or the other, and I'm entertained. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, definitely. I hadn't got this segment on my top five, in all fairness. I, I can certainly understand why you've recommended it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't... Um... Wasn't one that I had down either, unfortunately. I mean, it was just the com- it was literally just the commentary call. I had to pause it to stop laughing. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I don't think I even noted it down in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of annoyed me at this point that most of the themes on, on these shows are dubbed. They're dubbing the uh, Misfits in Action's theme, and they keep dubbing it over the next section. So yeah. a really bad job, and it's just, it's just all over the place. And as you say, it kills the ring announcing and everything. But yeah, you can tell when they don't give a shit about the dubs. One thing I will say though, in this match, Lash Larue, it was weird. He reminded me of a cross between Spike Dudley and Scotty Too High. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Which was just bizarre, and that that was really all I wanted to say about that bit. I always thought Lash Larue had some potential. I think he's one of those guys in WCW at this point, that probably didn't get the rub of the green when WCW got bought, and that's kind of the end of the career. Yeah, there was something in there for him, but just never got brought out, sadly. No. What's your next one, Dan? I want to talk about a favourite of UTT. I want to talk about Terry Funk versus Johnny the Bull. Because Tank Abbott, oh, when he said favourite of you, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to Tank Abbott. Um, no, Terry Funk versus Johnny the Bull. Every time we see Terry Funk on this show, he gets crazier. We saw him popping off moonsaults at 54 in 1998. We saw him popping off moonsaults again. I can't remember if it was 1999 or 2000, but he's you know he's a year or two further down the line. And in this one, in the last show we reviewed, we saw Terry Funk wanting to take Johnny the Bull under his wing and, you know, train him up. So it's been, what, two weeks? Yeah. And Funk's asking Johnny the Bull, if he, if he, are you ready for your opponent? Are you ready for your opponent? He's a real tough guy. You mean something in that ring. Don't forget it. Don't forget that trash can. And as soon as Johnny the Bull turns around, Funk just twats him with a chair. <laughs> and Funk... Beats the shit out of this absolute hoss of a kid for what felt like 10 minutes. Just yeah. kept beating him, yelling at him, trying to bring the best out of him. And for some reason, it took the commentary a fair while to cotton on that Funk was the opponent, which, you know, smart lads. But yeah. there was trash cans, there was guardrail shots, some sickening chair shots to the head and some ones where you thought that was just a love tap, but still, you know, all adds to the CTE. And Funk was just joined throughout all of it. <laughs> We've got Terry Funk ramming Johnny's head through a chair in the corner and then doing the muscle, like a muscle man pose while he's got a T-shirt on over a singlet <laughs> and whatever trousers he was wearing. It was just absolute chaos. But then it got incredible when Johnny actually took charge. He kicked the chair into Funk's face, punched him in the ear, Threw the chair at Funk's face, sent him back in, and there was just absolute carnage. Funk was busted open, there was fighting in the crowd, and then Johnny the Bull, this big absolute unit, and I've never seen this from him before, it has Funk down outside with a chair over his face, runs the ropes, jumps unaided to the top rope, tries to get his balance, loses it, jumps back down, so there's a standing jump to the top rope again and then hits a leg drop to the outside to the chair that's over Funk's face. I mean, what is that, wasn't the end, that wasn't the end of the match. And Scott Hudson was losing his shit at this, and rightly so, selling it so well. They're both, by this point, spent struggling to get up. Funk's bleeding. Funk's miss, Funk misses with a chair shot. 
tries to hit an inside cradle. And so I can't remember if it was Hudson or Madden says, what was it, uh, inside cradle in a hardcore match, the hell with that, kill each other. And it all yeah. ends with a DDT on a chair. It was insane. I think Funk must have been 60 by this point. Yeah. So I've got to put that one forward. It was a great showing by Funk. And this is, you know, building to the pay-per-view match for Johnny the Bull versus Funk. Johnny the Bull gets injured in storyline in this match. And then Funk gets injured on Fonda. So neither of them end up going to uh, the pay-per-view, unfortunately. And I thought, gets... I thought this was building to Johnny versus Vito. Yes, Johnny versus Vito. I but... thought you said Johnny versus Funk. <laughs> yeah, no, because, because in storyline here... Johnny the Bull gets so injured, Funk has to take over. So on Thunder, they're wondering, has Funk done this so he can angle himself into the hardcore match? Then Funk gets injured, so he's not there. So they have to bring in a mystery opponent or mystery opponents for the hardcore match. It ends up being Big Vito versus Norman Smiley and Ralphus. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Anyway, we shouldn't really look too far forward when we're reviewing these points. I mean, it it was a classic funk funk match, wasn't it? You know, just in this era, the middle-aged and crazy, just putting himself through hell. And as you say, that spot with the chair over uh, his face was just insane. That was my second one on the list. Uh, Have you got any other thoughts on it, Cam? In the post-match, Terry Funk accidentally hits himself with a chair. (laughs) He throws the chair over his head, just throws it directly upwards and it comes back down on his head. It's because when he got up, he was still fighting. He didn't realise he'd been pinned. So he got up, you know, ready to ready to fight, ready to punch someone, just decided to fling the chair around and then he bonk. <laughs> so brilliant when he sort of got in this, the fighting stance when the chair hit him on his head. It's getting to a point now where it's like uh, we went through that phase of just putting everything Mick Foley did onto our Raw Top 5s whenever we reviewed an episode. I just I can't believe he's still doing it at that age and that he'd go on to do even more. How old is Terry Funk? Like, he looks about 90 uh, in this during 2000. Like, <laughs> right there, he's about 56, 57. I mean, I guess he's one of those, like, uh, Hulk Hogan who's looked, like, 90 since he was 40. <laughs> Yeah, so Hulk Hogan currently is 77 years old. Not Hulk Hogan, sorry, Terry Funk. The thing about Funk is that he just kept reinventing himself through his career. You know, he was a technical wrestler in the 70s, and then he goes to ECW and he's popping off moonsaults, and at this stage in his career is, you know, in basically the king of hardcore sort of thing. It's just insane. I think we, we christened spots like that leg drop when in the episode with Chris Bellis, we called it the Terry Fuck moment of the night. Because <laughs> it's just some mad shit that he'll take. I'm pretty sure he took a pal driver at some point onto the chair as well, in the middle of the crowd. It was insane. I mean, I, I'm more than happy for it to go on the top five, so I, I think we've got our first one here. Cam? Yeah, yeah, sounds good to me. Yep. Sweet. Superb. I am going to go for something that I didn't quite, I, I enjoyed it at the time, but kind of in an ironic way. And I think I'd missed the point of it. And actually, talk, you know, I think that you, Dan, and Chris Bellis have, have helped me see the light on this. I'm going to go for the free count Tank Abbott segment. 
think this is the first time we see DJ Ran on one of these nitros we've covered, but he, he was someone that they got into the show to sort of keep the energy up during the breaks, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we see Tank Abbott force him off his decks, and then he's going to play some three-count music. You know, three-count are going to come out for the match. And Shane Helms is kind of favouring his arm, even when he's sort of coming into the ring. And then he goes out and all of a sudden he's injured and someone has to take over for him. And lo and behold, it's Tank Abbott. They're all doing these sort of topes over the, the ropes. And then Tank Abbott just stands in front of Yang and Yang shits himself. He, he gets in the <laughs> He punches him. It's one punch Tank Abbott. He, he's out and the match ends. And then Tank Abbott gets on the microphone. Freak Out Bats got a promo and Tank Abbott's like, shut up and sing. But not in a funny way. Tank Abbott is Free Count's number one fan. But he's also the hardest man in the world. <laughs> I, I saw an interview with Tank Abbott that he did last week. Someone said about, could he beat someone in UFC? And Tank Abbott said, I've just had my liver replaced, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I believe it. <laughs> so Absolutely. Free Count, I've got this mega fan who will kick the living shit out of him if he doesn't do what they want. And what he wants to do, even if Shane Helms has an injured arm, he wants them to get in the ring and dance around. Otherwise, there's going to be hell to pay. And I just love the idea that he's so hard, he can force his favourite band to do whatever he wants. And he's so hard, he can get doing duck impressions in a promo over. Yeah. I've come round to your thinking on this, Dan. I know I didn't on the... (laughs) But, you know, we're a few weeks down the road. I've seen a lot more of Tank Abbott at this point, and, and I've suddenly realised everything Tank Abbott does, he, he does because he knows he can fuck people up if they don't let him do it. It's life goals. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's, that's my point on Tank Abbott, and it, it's weird to me because I'd heard of Tank Abbott. I'd seen a few bits of the, the three-count stuff and all of that, and I was, you know, a lot of, I was a fair bit younger and a smarkier at the time. And I thought, yeah, whatever, looks like shit. Throughout watching these episodes, I have become a Tank Abbott fan. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, God, right. What, but what would have made it better if he's there, you know, doing duck impressions and just standing three count? Imagine if he did all that while WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, yeah. On that episode we did with Chris Bellis, I've rated Russo's decision to make him world champion that ultimately got him shuffled out of creative but i think it was probably the right call yeah i'd go along yeah make tank but world champion he's legit hard motherfucker we saw him incredibly beat up sid vicious yeah for a lot of the match he can one punch pretty much anyone on the roster (laughs) but imagine if he's standing three count with the world heavyweight title yeah. And I'm always an advocate for just put it on the hardest guy in the room. I mean, it's so easy to get the hardest guy in the room over, whether that's Brock, whether that's Lashley, whether that's Moxley, you know, just the hardest guy in the room will get over all the time. Les Kellett. Yeah. I need to show you Les Kellett matches, Cam, you'll love them. Yeah, absolutely, man. The thing about Les Kellett is you didn't work the style of being the hardest man in the room. It was He was only the hardest man in the room when he went backstage. So it was like, I'm going to ballroom dance in this match and, and people would do it with him because they knew they'd get fucked up if they didn't. <laughs> I think I've told this story before. I read the, um, I read the book called The Wrestling by Sir Simon Garfield. And the tele- someone tell- told a story 
about when Les Kelly was helping put the ring up, and he didn't start wrestling until he was in his 40s, I believe, Les Kelly. Yeah. Um, and he dropped just one of the big heavy bits of metal on his foot, and everybody around heard a crunch, an audible crunch, as that metal hit his foot. And they said, do you want to get that checked out? And he says, no, come on, let's get a ring up, and then we'll have, you know, we'll have a look at it. Blah, blah, blah. So they got the ring up, and then they said, come on. And they said, look, you've got to get your foot looked at, because he was, he was just limping a bit, blah, blah, blah. When he went to get ready for his match and he finally took his shoe off, they had to cut his sock off because there was so much blood. Whatever had fallen on his foot had basically crushed the bones in his foot and a couple of them were like poking through the skin, essentially. Jesus. Lovely stuff. Imagine if Les Keller had been a three-count Stan. (laughs) It's the best game of all time. Yeah. Yeah, he might have been. You don't know that. I, th- I think he probably wasn't. He, he apparently got to be a very bitter man in his later years. Don't we all? Sadly. I'm done now. <laughs> so, do you guys think Tank Abbott and Free Count should go on the top five? It didn't make mine, but my first one was rubbish, apparently, as well. So, uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> no, you'll allow it. I'll allow it. You'll allow it. I'll allow it. I'm commandeering this podcast. If, if Tank Abbott was stood next to you, you'd be saying, yes, sir. Yes, yes it's, Tank Abbott has told me that I have to put it on my top five, so it's in the top five. I'm pretty sure I have acquiesced in similar fashion to something going on a top five because I'm just too scared of if whoever it was finds out. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely goes on for me. Like I say, it, something weird is happening to me watching these Nitros. I'm actually a Tank Abbott fan. <laughs> and as I say, I mean, I remember at the time sort of liking it ironically, but... I've sort of seen another layer to it and, and just the sort of the look in his eye and the, the way that he says it is not messing around. Tank had his own dancing mat. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I noticed that. <laughs> oh. He had his own dancing square when the rest of them had circles. Yeah, but would you have dared tell him it wasn't a circle? No. <laughs> Never. There was a great call by Scott Hudson as well. He said that Tank Abbott's the president of the Three Count Fan Club, but he may be the only member. <laughs> and so I think it was Tank Abbott who said, oh, DJ Ran uh, just lived up to his name. <laughs> Scott Hudson said, this is like Son of Sam joining NSYNC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noted that down as well. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Scott Hudson, again, I've just got to say again, Absolute revelation on commentary for these nitros. Yeah, I mean, it's felt such a breath of air since Scotland's come in. It really has. What's your next one, Cam? My next one on the list is the Crowbar and David Flair. Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, to the listeners that may not know this, I'm very new to WCW. This is the first WCW show that I've ever watched. So, uh, <laughs> or at least in its entirety, I've seen segments here and there. But uh, the first one I've watched in its entirety with Stacey Keebler. Can't remember what she was called in WCW. Um, oh. <laughs> Stacey Keebler and... And Daphne. Daphne, that's it. Now, it was just a, a great, stupid segment, which I love out of my wrestling, with Pepto-Bismol in the face and nut shots. But my prevailing thought throughout all this, and now I've never seen anything else from Crowbar, I don't know what he's done. I don't know if this was just the lighting on the day or the, sh- the angles on the day, but he looks like Roman Reigns had a love child with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> 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 I 
that's going that's going on for this observation alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed it out to Amy, and then we just sat there and couldn't. I mean, I, I don't know what else happened in the segment. If I'm honest, I just I was staring at the Nicholas Cage Roman Reigns love child. So would you call him Nicholas Reigns or Roman Cage? I mean, Roman Cage is more wrestler name, isn't it? Yeah, but there's a lot of cages at the minute. There is a lot. Of ca- that's a that's a good point. Cage, Page, Rage, Kevin Fage, Obtuse Rubber Goose. <laughs> so yeah, it's got Nick- Nicholas Reigns. <laughs> Yeah, let's go with that. As long as it's not Luther Reigns. <laughs> yeah. I was loving this storyline at the time, this love triangle with a little bit stuck on the end. It's not quite a love square because Miss Hancock doesn't want Crowbar, but Crowbar wants Daphne. David Flair is playing off Daphne and Miss Hancock. I, I Flair. Rick Flair kind of gets away with it. We saw in previous episodes, there's Rick Flair with woman on one arm and Miss Elizabeth on the other, and then chatting up Deborah. You know, Ric Flair can spin all these plates, whereas David Flair finds it extremely difficult to try and live up to that image. So I, I kind of like that element of it. But I love soap opera in wrestling, and, and this was pure soap opera. And the fact that they're trying to shave Daphne's head and then um, Crowbar gets knocked out and they put the clippers in Crowbar's hands. And then Daphne sees Crowbar with the clippers, even though he's the one that, you know, secretly has the crush on her that's trying to rescue her from David Flair. I'm all in for this shit. And not only that, David Flair was pulling fake hair out of his underpants. <laughs> yeah, I did see it. I, I blame the cameraman. <laughs> Flair's know a thing or two about <laughs> underpants, don't they? I mean, we saw what Rick was getting up to on a train recently. Allegedly. <laughs> Space Mountain, hold this ride longest line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the fake hair stuff really did make me laugh. It's it's like when people love to, well, the more, the more tribal side of wrestling, Twitter loves to point out botches when the camera angle's all wrong. Think, you know, a lot of the bad punching work punches we've seen, uh, Jericho falling off the, uh, being pushed off the um, the blood and guts cage. Stuff like that says, but really the fault lies in the production. Yeah, it does. The the, the cam the camera angles, the, the crews or whoever's you know demanding the camera angles should be protecting that. I mean, if if we're being fair though, Dan, how dare Chris Jericho not fall to his death for the sake of a good bit of TV? I, I, I know, shocking, <laughs> disgusting, completely shocking. Yeah, yeah, disgusting. Discredits everything he's ever done in wrestling ever, obviously. <laughs> And for people who aren't quite nuanced, that was sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it came across. <laughs> but as far as the uh, Flair, Daphne, Miss Hancock and Crowbar segment, um, it wasn't actually one that I'd thought about. But for the for the observation that Crowbar looks like Roman Reigns fuck Nicholas Cage and for the awful, cringeworthy moment where David Flair starts singing the fucking Titanic song to Daphne. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> it was just, it, like you say, a soap opera. And the sort of, it, I'll be honest, I know, they, I know that I think they did it first because it came for Eddie Guerrero later, but it all felt a bit like cheating steel with the framing of Crowbar. Oh, and 
David Flair got punched in the dick. And he got punched in the dick. In the dick. <laughs> and picked up Bismol on the face. And when Crowbar yeah. he had 10 seconds to get to the ring, he went one, six, seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then David Flair looked like he got spunked on by Mr. Blobby. Who was it on commentary that said, are we allowed to show pink on TV? I didn't even understand what he was referencing. No, I'm not oh, clear either. I heard that, I was like, all right. And I just moved on. <laughs> I was like, no, I think there, was, there, was sort of an, there was sort of an undercurrent at this time where they were having a lot of problems with um, standards and practices. Yeah. There was. Oh, right, okay. All right, so it's referencing. We actually do get that in a late part of the show. I don't know if we're going to come on to it. Maybe. We'll find out. We will. So we're happy for this to be our third one for the telenovela that is Blair, Daphne, Miss Hancock. <laughs> no, um, no, Nicholas Reigns. Nicholas <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to go with that. Yeah. Superb. It looks like um, people have, well, at least Dan and I have topped up our beers. I think you're still on the run there, Cam. So what new beers have you got, Dan? I've uh, ploughed through the first stout and the lager. I'm halfway down the peanut butter, uh, peanut marshmallow and ice cream stout, which is actually really nice. Uh, and then I've got BB number 19, uh, which is a pina colada goes uh, from Brew by Numbers, which sounds bloody nice to me. It's a six percenter. And then I've gone back to Fierce Brewing, favourite of the show, and I've got their small batch edition 51 grape sour. Which is a fruit sour at five point seven percent. Yeah, and um, just on fierce brewing, I had their blackberry tart goes the other day. I'd initially, but well, the second time I'd had it, I'd initially given it, you know, like a quarter out of five or whatever. I must have had a bad can because it was absolutely lovely. I gave it three point seven five. Bloody hell, that's a baby face turn if ever I've seen one. <laughs> well, as I say, I think, I think maybe I got a duff can of it before, but uh, yeah, as you say, Fierce Brewing have come in with high ratings. Uh, Brew by Numbers is also a really good brewery, to be fair. I think this is my first sample of Brew by Numbers. We've had a few from there, it's a decent brewery. So I'm continuing on the Beer 52 Chicago box set. I've got Noon Whistle, which is a Camozo Pale Ale, it's 5%. And that's from NWB Co-Brewing. And another one from Temperance Beer Company, which is Karaoke Tears. So I imagine that was what Tank Abbott had when he was uh, singing Freak Out and Karaoke. (laughs) No, he didn't have tears unless he was overcome with emotion because nobody was heckling Tank Abbott. (laughs) Yeah, it was the emotion. So what's your next one, Dan? Right, I'm going to go with... Vampiro versus the Demon and everything surrounding it to be honest because we got earlier on in the show we had just a, some footage from earlier in the day where we saw Asia uh, rehearsing her entrance which was a nice sort of peek back uh, behind the curtain and she went to sort of you know to practice the posing on stage and then some of the pyro went off knocked her off the stage and she was obviously you know, in need of medical attention had to be taken to the hospital and uh, then later on in the show, we see a mysterious druid figure in a sting mask handing Dale Tarborg the demon gear, just as he's about to go and see uh, see Asia in the hospital. Uh, quite why it took him that long to decide he needed to go see her in the hospital, I don't know. But uh, but there we are. 
I advise not thinking too deeply about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, then we get a vampire of. So um, just to be fair to continuity. I think he said something along the lines of he'd just come back to collect his stuff and then he was going back to the hospital. Ah, I missed that. But it turns out the guy in the mask, uh, the sting mask, who hands him the uh, the demon cape was Vampiro. And then we get Vampiro versus the demon. Uh, up to this point, as we've said before, demon came in with a lot of fanfare and, you know, kid the power of Kiss behind him with, you know, making Gene Simmons an absolute shitload of money every time he appeared. And had been basically a jobber up, up to this point. But he still had a main event entrance. Do you know when you've got God of Thunder? playing he's got the the big gnarly looking coffee he comes out he's got the face paint he's got the cape he's got the blood in his mouth all the rest of it the match itself isn't really anything to write home about demon comes in vampiro jumps the start which i did like because so often you see two people embroiled in a feud and it's just they get in and it's a lock up and it's yeah. a slow burner but this just got going demon gets a kick in vampiro lands a bigger kick misses a leg drop off the top Demon tries to get on top with an elbow, and then we get about 10 druids with sting masks all come out and surround the ring. Vampiro hits a top rope clothesline. He's getting confused by the sting druids. They all point the bats at Vampiro from ringside, and the demon plants Vampiro with a love gun for the three. And then we get the druids in the ring surrounding Vampiro. The lights go out. You see sort of flickers of, light, flickers of lights going off. The uh, druids have all raised the bats. The light's up and Vampiro's gone. He's pulled his disappearing act. And as I've said before, I'm a sucker for anything sort of spooky or anything like that in wrestling. So I was all for this Vampiro versus Demon storyline. I'm, I'm, turns out I'm much more invested in it than I thought I was the last episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really invested in this storyline at the moment. I mean, we've seen the Kiss Demon be a bit of a damp squib. They've completely turned that around with this this whole thing about almost the character of him possessing him and he, he was trying to sort of push the gear away and then the gear is given back to him by Vampiro and he goes back into the gimmick and the whole tie-in with the possibility of bringing Sting back and Vampiro's superpowers. This is the best the Kiss Demon was ever booked in WCW. I have just realised that the Kiss Demon laid the groundwork for Finn Balor. Yeah. Yeah, this <laughs> version of the Kiss Demon did. My only note about this show was the demon equals Malachi Black meets Balor. Yeah. That was my entire notes for this <laughs> match. <laughs> yeah. And then, well, that, that's, it's really interesting, Cam, because that, you know, that's part of why we like people like yourself coming on, because they say this is your first WCW show, you're going sight unseen, you don't know anything of the story surrounding it. Obviously, me and Rob have the advantage that we watched the Nitro from two weeks ago, just covering this show. So we've got sort of the, I don't know if advantage is the right term, but we've got the, the benefit of context. So it's really yeah. interesting that, that that was all that came away from it for you. Yeah, like I say, I mean, it's it's interesting for me as well. And uh, I, I find it similarly with Imi, who's obviously a very casual wrestling fan as a whole. Even with the modern day stuff, she kind of watches here and there. She's staying up with me for Rampage tonight, but just that's mainly because where, where do we have to be? We've got the Rona. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so yeah, it's quite it's quite nice having that from her. So I understand how it can be for you guys as well. I, personally, I'm not an advocate for spooky bollocks in my wrestling. It's just 
it's just not my bag. Very much uh, to each his own, but uh, it's really not my bag. Whether that was Matt Hardy teleporting on AEW, whether that was, you know, Undertaker really didn't particularly... I can't stand The Fiend, man. And Alexa Bliss is even worse. Jesus, I'm sure (laughs) people on Twitter will make their feelings known about someone slagging off their (laughs) beloved Fiend. But... uh... (laughs) I'll make my feelings known, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I just... I love Bray Wyatt. Don't get me wrong. I love Bray. Could not stand The Fiend. It's just like... (laughs) Although my... One of my favourite things about WrestleMania was... The man was killed by fire. And that wouldn't keep him down. One RKO and he's done, though. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should mention a man being killed by fire. Because Vampiro had killed Sting by fire at this point. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> what a professional he is. What a way to circle it back around. Absolute professional. <laughs> yeah, the one, one exception one of my mates. to the spooky bollocks rule, though, is the demon Finn Balor, though, because I am a mark for anything Balor. Give me any version of Balor anytime, even if it's smiley Smackdown Balor from a few years ago. Or Prince from NXT, you know, Prince Devitt from New Japan. I'm a total Balor mark, so I'll allow that spooky bollocks. What about the version of Finn Balor that appeared on Nitro in 2000 called The Kiss Demon? Love it. Always said all. So I'm getting the impression, Cam, you probably don't want this on the top five. It's not for me, like, not for me. Oh. Fair enough. We can, we'll we stick can... a pin in it. We can circle back if needs be. Yeah. The next one I'm going to go for is the filthy animals, Rey Mysterio and Hoovertoon Guerrero, cosplaying as Billy Kidman and Landstorm. And Disco Inferno is now officially the hip-hop Inferno. And he says that he'd like to bring out two of the hottest young stars in WCW at this point, Landstorm and Billy Kidman. and we get Juventud Guerrero dressed as Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio dressed as Lance Storm. And they, they come out and Conan and Disco Inferno are, are going to interview them. Mark Madden actually says on commentary, it looks like Lance Storm's grown a little bit since we last saw him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I laughed at a Mark Madden joke. I feel dirty. <laughs> so does he. It was just sort of classic. I mean... You know, as Sai Powell pointed out on the show, whenever whenever you sort of hear Hooventude, uh, you're going to get some crazy bollocks out of him. You know, so uh, you're like Conan saying, how does it feel to uh, be tagged with the most charismatic uh, wrestler in the world, Landstorm? And uh, Hooventude just says, where's Tari? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. And uh, he's saying, you know, forget about Tari. You know, we, we heard you were these sort of amazing wrestlers and uh, he, he said he was just there to uh, watch Rey Mysterio and uh, the Juice to uh, learn how to wrestle because they didn't know how. Hip Hop Inferno says to uh, Landstorm, uh, whereabouts in Canada are you from? And he's like, I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which was sort of always the start of Landstorm's promos where we don't have to shout to prove our points. Then they come out and have this match. Now, Landstorm has been quite vocal over the years about he thinks this is shit. Landstorm hates this period of his career, despite being imminently on the biggest push of his life. And he said this was stupid booking, that Ray came out in red and white tights 
he said he'd never worn red and night tights on nitro before he'd worn them on thunder but not on nitro at this point i mean <laughs> talk about splitting hairs wasn't a leap i mean last time he was in ecw he was wearing black and red tights of the same design and what colors the canadian flag i mean jesus christ lance but that just shows that the reason lance storm got over with by being uncharismatic is because he maybe it just isn't no. you know and, and that, that's not a knock to him he's a fantastic wrestler and actually just whether he meant to or not, was involved in some really entertaining stuff in the early 2000s in, in WWE that I remember watching as a kid, you know, when he was, I think, was he tagging with gold dust at one point? You know, just add, you know, can I be serious for a moment? It's like an indie wrestling news going, oh, well, actually, I think you'll find that such and such has never done such and such and never won such and such at this point, and such and such has never won a match on a Thursday when it's snowing in the Tokyo Dome. Yeah. So, just fuck off. It, it, it doesn't matter. And like you say, Storm at this point was just about to embark on the biggest push of his career. Yeah. It's incredible bitterness, but I loved this sending up of Kidman and Storm. I mean, you know, the, the filthy animals are, are there as kind of this irreverent group. And the fact that we've got Hoovy and Ray, who have a lot of charisma cosplaying as them, I, I just thought was brilliant. What did you reckon, Cam? So you've summed up most of my thoughts there, other than congratulations, Lance Storm, on his thousand matches in Impact. Quite an achievement. That was James Storm. I thought it was Lance Storm. Definitely James Storm. Oh. Don't think Lance Storm's ever been in Impact. I, I think these Storms are the best family in wrestling that aren't related to each other. You know, when you have <laughs> Lance Storm, <laughs> Storm Tim Storm, Tony Storm. Tim Storm, Tony Storm. I mean, the, the, the cages are pretty good. Brian and Christian. Brian and Christian, as are the pages as well. Diamond Dallas, Ethan Page. I think the Storms win, because I'm, I'm sure there's a wrestler called Devon Storm as well. There'll be loads of Storms dotted about there. I think there's more Storms than there are hearts. <laughs> it, was, it was great when James Storm tagged with Christopher Daniels in um, Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Brilliant. Something, something. Yeah, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm too tired to get political on my own podcast. What did you think about this one, Dan? It didn't actually make my my thinking for the top five, but you kind of sold me on it. It's kind of a rare occurrence in wrestling as a whole that we have a sort of cosplay mocking segment that was in relative good taste. You know, it didn't have any of the um, any of the blackface that was in DX cosplaying as the nation. It didn't have any of the just complete disrespect of NWO dressing up as the Far Horsemen. This was just an amusing send-up. I think at one point, Conan alluded to a rumour about a celebrity where it's just like, that just wouldn't fly today. It was nothing terrible, I don't think. But still, you know, it's one of those where you just hear it now and just think, mm, maybe not. But yeah, it was good. And then the match itself, it's, when you've got those, those far in the ring, it's going to be good. 
Yeah, that, that, that's it's going to be. I wrote down. I was like, it's it's Rey Mysterio and Juventud Guerra at the end of the day. <laughs> well, Landstorm, Landstorm, Billy Lance Kidman also done some great stuff. could really go. A bit of Billy Kidman, I think he's. Don't know anything just, about. Him. I think I think he's fairly underrated. Looking back, even just in terms of this show, a few shows back that we covered, Kidman was being put in a program with Hogan. Huh. It was like huh. a like a new new like a new blood versus the old guard sort of thing. We may well cover the fallout from that at the end of the show. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well then. <laughs> but yeah, I'd go along with this because the match itself I enjoyed right enough. And then, yeah, the send-up was pretty good. It didn't. It, it was another one that didn't enter my initial thinking, but I've been talked around to it. So have we got our fourth one there? Yeah. Cameron? I'm done, I'm done with that. Superb. Excellent. So, Cam, it's you next. If you've got any more left on your list. Absolutely. I've got exactly one more, which happens to be my lowest point of the show, I reckon. Absolutely hated the main event, man. Like, do Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff know what a battle royale is? Because <laughs> this would prove <laughs> say that they, that they absolutely don't. <laughs> Said it was a battle royale and two people started in the ring. And I was like, this... Seems like a terrible battle royale. And where's Goldberg? Then it showed a load of them arguing backstage and running past the cat to then enter another 10 people, roughly, into the ring. Then, I mean, I'm a huge Kevin Nash mark. I'm a big fan of anything big and sexy. So, I, uh... I, <laughs> why do you think I got into wrestling, mate? <laughs> I'm trying to impress you. <laughs> big fan of anything big and sexy. So, as a Kevin Nash mark, obviously I know how this feud ended up. I know how the how the finish to the Goldberg uh, Kevin Nash match was, which uh, dampened you, it a little bit. Are you thinking of when Nash ended Goldberg's streak? Yeah. Oh no, that this, this is, is a different time. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I was going to say the cattle prod. My biggest biggest underline. This was one thing that I underlined on my notes was what the fuck was that. <laughs> like <there> were, <laughs> when eventually Goldberg comes out, roughly three minutes after the battle royale had already started, he walks around the ring a bit, then walks into the ring, then gets kicked out of the ring through the middle rope. I'm going to add as well. He walks through the middle rope and then gets kicked off the apron. Yeah. After <laughs> several people ran past the general manager, uh, the cat, the commissioner, sorry, the cat, and the cat apparently trying to stop them from all going into the ring and the cat was the guy who got them to go into the ring and it just made absolutely no sense to me. I was watching this like, am I stoned? Because I've not got a clue what's happening here. And if I was watching at the time, I feel like that wouldn't have got me excited for Goldberg versus Kevin Nash. Because I mean, there's just it, it was barely even a tease. Like, give us at least a little tease. And I know a little tease for Goldberg is a 10-second segment because that's roughly half of his matches <laughs> combined. But, yeah, I'm also, I, I, I've never been a Goldberg guy. Never been a Goldberg guy. Not now, not then. His match against Steve Regal, I think, was, like, the big turning point for me where I was, like, anything over four minutes and he's just exposed as just a just a massive muscle, which he absolutely is, which is valid. But I'd much prefer a, a Lashley or a Lesnar who can actually go as well. I, don't, I, I personally don't think Goldberg can go. He can't. He can't. Mm. I, mean, 
I loved Goldberg in WCW. Absolutely loved him. Not wrestler, just as this sort of entity that came down and spear Jack Hammer. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, it, was an, it was an attraction. Yeah. I am curious to see if, if, if like, 90-year-old Goldberg or whatever he is now is going to try to jackhammer Bobby Lashley tomorrow night. <laughs> I'd pay good money to just even see that attempted. We're on Goldberg becoming WWF champion yet again. Eve, Eve, as we're recording this. <laughs> yeah. I actually said this to my brother. We could be walking out tomorrow with our two top champions being Goldberg and Cena. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm, I'm kind of hoping because I'm not massively engaged with WWE main roster anymore. I've said it before. It just doesn't hold my attention. Which you know, mm-hmm. each of their own. If you enjoy it, fair enough. But I'm kind of hoping one thing that will actually draw me back is if. Lashley beats Goldberg, and we're building to uh, Lashley versus Lesnar. I've wanted that match since Lashley was in TNA, since he was TNA champion, because they're both two guys with legit MMA credentials, and who both can go in a wrestling ring. Well, according to Meltzer, it was meant to be Lesnar that was back for SummerSlam to face Lashley, but he's still in Canada and didn't want to come back because of COVID, which is absolutely understandable. So they got basically, let's be real, like B-Tech Lesnar is Goldberg. Also, with the uh, the travel restrictions with uh, between Canada and America are only just uh, loosening up now. Yeah. Um, but also, there's more journalistic credentials in one of my turds than in Dave Meltzer. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite frank, I'm sorry, Shagger Dave. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a fan. Uh, I see. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't mind uh, Meltzer if I'm honest. I prefer some other journalists. How he has carved a niche over decades and built up a, a, a library of work that is in, that is incomparable. But for me, far too much of it is opinion or conjecture passed off as fact, and then scrubbed off as, well, plans can change. Mm, yeah. I mean, which, let's be real, this is Vince McMahon, so plans do change, like, seconds oh, before they happen. Absolutely. You know, Vince has an idea, runs with it, takes a tricky shit, decides against it. <laughs> to be absolutely fair, though, I always wonder about this. How much of that is reality, and how much of that is... The perception that Dave Meltzer has planted to cover his own backside for what he's reported previously. Potentially. I'm a, I see. I'm a big. I'm a big Sean Rott sap guy. No one's ever said Fair that. <laughs> and I, I like Sean Rott sap. I just think he seems like a chill dude. <laughs> like, although I did. Uh, I looked this up on Cage Match when it was first released that Brock Lesnar was supposedly coming out. I believe, if I'm remembering my dates correctly. That if Lesnar were to come back and lose to Lashley, then it will be the first time Lesnar's lost two televised matches in a row since 2001, when he lost to Kurt Angle and The Undertaker. One on TV, one at a pay-per-view in a triple threat. Um, I can't believe that. I mean, so that's the, one. The... 20 years without losing two televised matches in a row. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he, he hasn't really been active during that point, though. It's like when you say Huddersfield haven't beaten Liverpool since 1963. It's like, yeah, but they've played them four times. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
It's all right. Liverpool play Burnley tomorrow, and I'm pretty sure Burnley are going to shit out the way to a win. I mean, yeah. Burnley are our current bogey team, Jesus. That was a guess on the uh, the Huddersfield one, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had, you had, you had, you had two, didn't you have two seasons in the uh, the Premier League? In the 70s, yeah. Oh, well, sorry, yeah, we did recently as well, yeah. <laughs> so it's maybe eight times. We beat Man U when we're, when we're in the Premier League. That, that counts as beating Liverpool, I believe. I mean, uh, no, it doesn't. Beating Man U nowadays, that was a pretty low bar, like... Yeah, please don't get too cocky too soon. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna have gonna have the Man United fans after me, the Fiend fans after me. I'm gonna be screwed coming off of this. I may as well just delete my Twitter, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think you overestimate the amount of people that listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's the last beat Liverpool in 1959? <laughs> <laughs> the fifth time after that we drew. Seventh, we drew that. Fourteen times and drew two since we last beat them. <laughs> oh, blessed town. Oh, there you go. You beat Preston the other night, though. We did. Liverpool did you a favour that night. We sent Seth Vandenberg to score an own goal. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the all-time, it's tied. 30 wins to Liverpool, 30 wins to town and 17 draws. I still feel like we're doing better out of the whole situation. Yeah. You're, doing better, you're doing better since 1959. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? If that if that's what it takes, I'll take it. I'll yeah. take that. Shall yeah. we drag it back to some wrestling, gentlemen? Drag it back to what? Uh, play fighting in underpants. Oh, oh, all right. Because yeah. I believe Cam was putting forward the uh, the 20 man battle uh, 20 man battle royal. Oh yeah, oh yeah, but, yeah. Well, I completely forgot um, we were doing that. I think, and to be honest, mate, you missed a bit of context in what the cat was actually doing. I think he was sending out the heels to try and wear Nash down to then send Goldberg in and pick the bones. But he didn't count on the fact that he is one man. Booker T is significantly larger than him, and the rest of the faces behind Booker T could also beat the fuck out of him. (laughs) So that's why they were doing the right thing. They were waiting for the queue. They're being professionals, and then they just said... Why the fuck are we listening to this dick? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, again, we kind of got that context from like watching the other episodes from the one two weeks ago when Booker T sort of leaves the Misfits and is sort of going out on his own. And I very much see this as part of the maturation of Booker T, sort of becoming yeah. more leader of the face locker room. Fair play. But these, um, but the, the, this points the the context that I'm referring to. It was put over by on commentary, I believe. I'm sure I heard him say, you know, cats doing something, he's holding back whoever, and then you just get it from seeing who's coming out, you no, know, you know, and from where you've seen them, what you've seen them doing in, uh, previously in the show. But yeah, the finish was straight up garbage. Yeah, like he went to the middle rope above anything else. Like I say, my my main prevailing point with this is. They don't know what a battle royale is. <laughs> no, they really don't. I mean, they even said on commentary, is it a battle royale? Is it some sort of gauntlet? So I was searching I guess... the internet afterwards, trying to work out. Like Everyone called it a battle royale. I was like, is anyone going to call it anything else just so I don't make I the think wrong what call? It, I, think, I think what it is, is that it, it was billed as a battle royale, but obviously it was, it was the cat. What they were going for is that it's the cat trying to manipulate shit and fuck Kevin Nash over by telling certain people that they can't go to the ring and, and who'd basically help him out. 
that's what they were going for, but it just came off as a, an absolute clusterfuck. Yeah. So would you put this on for good or bad reasons, Dan? I'm not 100% sold on it yet. I just want to throw out one more point for consideration before we decide if that's all right. Let's well, go next. Yeah, um, well, Rob, which way were you leaning with the 20-man battle royal? To, to be fair, it made my honourable mentions as a point. Well, I don't, I don't know if honourable is the right word. But, um... <laughs> Tolerable <laughs> mentions. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy to put a pin in that. To be honest, I, I'd probably rather have maybe the Kiss Demon, you know, than that segment, personally. Well, I'm going to chuck a, a third one out there. And I'm going to throw out Mike Orson's involvement in the show. Particularly because up until this point, all we saw him do was put people through tables. Uh, it was Mike Orson calling out Scott Steiner. Which I went into it thinking, why is, why is Orson calling out Steiner? Steiner's suspended. And then you quickly realise that it's just Orson's out there to be a dick. Because he knows he's not there. But anyway, he gets into it. You know, He told Cat to line the ambulances up. Did exactly. And then he cuts off. He's like, he starts joining with the crowd. He's like, hey, you with a poster. I'm not a mullet. You're a mullet. Like like a child. I've clipped this for the end of the show. This this is the <laughs> program going out on. <laughs> and, and then it's just into mullet chant. And awesome. I don't know if he... This is what's great about this bit. He looked genuinely frustrated. Like he couldn't get away with it. He's just he's trying to talk. He's just getting more it, more it, you know, giving it all that. And then he finally he finally gets to the ref to the point. Says, so, you know, took out anybody who got near him, put people through tables. He didn't get the one more he wants, which is Steiner. Calls Steiner out, demands that the ref, a referee ring the bell and count the ten, and then celebrates like a douchebag, claiming to be two and zero against Steiner, uh, Scott Steiner, and then Rick Steiner comes out. Catches out and uh, you know they, they do a bit of back and forth. But catches awesome on the leapfrog and slams him and clotheslines him to the outside. And then Rick Steiner steals the entire segment with the line, "Hey, mullet head, next time you call out a Steiner, make sure one of us isn't in the building." <laughs> Which is the most logical thing uh, Rick Steiner has ever said. <laughs> Apart from when he was sparring um, promo wise with the Chucky doll. <laughs> Apart from that, tagging with Judy Bagwell to become tag team champions. I don't. I never want to see that. <laughs> well, the most logical thing that any Steiner has said is trying to work out his odds at winning against Samoa Joe and Kurt Angle. Oh, fat asses! <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the segment, Cam? Good boss, This was another one that just wasn't for my taste. I was kind of distracted. This was again working into my rankings before of the five different aspects of wrestling where the fan reaction for me didn't feel as strong as he was selling it if that made sense i think that's fair i was distracted in the background by people just looking bored i feel like he wasn't didn't have as much heat as he thought he did personally and yeah i feel like it would have been better if there was an actual sign that said he was a mullet but people were just kind of stood there looking for it (laughs) but nobody uh, nobody at any point actually saw it I, I get the point of the segment. It it personally wasn't for me. That was a great line at the end by Rick Steiner. <laughs> a great line. My thought coming through this was, again, as someone that's very new to this era, is the Miz having his catchphrase as awesome 
come from Mike Awesome. Obviously, his real name is goes by Mike Mazanen. I just wondered if there was some sort of crossover there. I don't know if that's a thing or if that's just headcanon at this point. But Headcanon as far as I'm aware, but you could be right. Mike Awesome was a big deal in ECW. He was he was the champion. He actually appeared, he made his debut on Nitro on an episode we reviewed, I believe, while he was still ECW champion. He did. There were a couple of lines from commentary I loved in this. You know, when, when he's arguing with the fan about his mullet, Mike Madden said, that's a good-looking hairdo. And, you know, what's the guy with the sign thinking? And when he's telling the guy with the mullet to shut up, Tony Schiavone says, well, of course there's going to be a mullet champ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the thing is, part of the reason I wanted to bring this up was because it was just so very on brand for yeah. for this show. Oh, it really is. I mean, I, I, that was my fifth point, in all fairness, this one, which obviously, you know, sort of Cam disagrees with. I mean, just a wider point in, on Mike Awesome in general, because obviously, you know, he'd been ECW champion, and ECW has a very vocal and passionate following, but maybe not a large following, if that makes sense. Mm. So, like, like mainstream wrestling today. <laughs> like mainstream wrestling today. So it was over there, and like you say, I don't think he was really over at this point not as over as he was kind of thinking he was and knowing so i mean okay he goes on to the 70s guy gimmick later on and then he goes to mlw and i've watched some of the older mlw episodes during lockdown i people blame his time in wcw for him not getting over as a mainstream star i just i just don't see that in him no i don't for hindsight's twenty twenty, but I I don't see it. I think he's a decent mid carder, but you know, or a, a big fish in a small pond. It's like Charlie Adam looked great at Blackpool. Didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't look so great when he came to Liverpool. Well, yeah, it, it, it's exactly that, exactly that. So I've run out of mine now. Do you, do either of you two have any more in your top five? Cam, no, I'm done. No, so it looks like we're in a three-way dance for that final spot. Yeah, so we've got the Major Guns, Jindrak and O'Hare match. We've got the Kiss Demon uh, Vampiro Sting programme. And we've got the Battle Royal at the end of the show. And we've got Mike Awesome. Oh, wait, wait. I can put something forward that was so terrible, but I kind of don't want it on. Don't say Jeff Jarrett. Not Tigress, is it? No, it was going to be the one. It was going to be the thing that Cam told me not to mention, so I'm not going to mention it. That, <laughs> that silly shit who looked like he was sweating through his shirt. Mate, was, the first thing I wrote down was, "Why is Jeff Jarrett so sweaty?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong, I'm a big lad. I find fat jokes amusing, but when you've got 17 of them, right? 17 bad fat jokes rifled off in about a minute. It's, it's just kind of like you're just flinging shit at the wall by now. Uh, and do you know do you know the ironic thing about this, Jeff Jarrett? And just for the listeners, so um, Jeff Jarrett is predicting the end of Hulkamania, and you know th- there's that saying when the fat lady sings. So I kind of I kind of see what they thought played out awfully. They've got three women in sort of operatic Norse gear coming to the ring who who are larger ladies and there's nothing wrong with that and then you know commentary and Jeff Jarrett 
on on these three ladies. Ironically, the only person who's defending the fat ladies is Mark Madden. A stopped, stopped cunt is right twice a day. <laughs> I mean, I think he actually said at one point, you know, I'm a fat guy, I don't care about people's size. Yes, like I, said. I heard that one. I like that. <laughs> Fair play to him. We've got Mark Madden standing up for uh, people at one point. But <laughs> the, the thing about the segment is I kind, I kind of get what they were thinking. And I get that on paper, you know, oh, the, you know, the fat lady sings. So I, I get how they got to that conclusion. But it was never, ever going to be good. No. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I, in my head, I drew parallels to, was it 2016 Lashley versus Sami Zayn? Where yeah. he got his sisters into the ring that were just men in wigs and lipstick. I actually that... wrote that note about Lashley's sisters yeah. uh, segment. Mm. It, it felt very much in that vein. Yeah. Although that ended up with Lashley doing an obstacle course that looked phenomenal. I don't know how this ended up. <laughs> well, I'm well, guessing in shit. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. We will come to that at the end of the show. Oh, okay. I was going to put this forward, but I, I don't want to give it the credence by having it on the top five. So I'd rather go with Vampira versus the Demon for the main event. Those would be my two choices. My, my preference would be Vampiro versus the Demon. It would be mine as well, because I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I'll I, show uh, myself out. <laughs> well, this is the, this is the thing, because they are both good points. I'm just, I've just decided that I'm getting the uh, the deciding vote in this, by the way. <laughs> I think Cam's getting the deciding vote, to be fair. Am I? I thought, I thought you guys were, uh, uh, to be fair, I'd made peace with the fact that it was Vampiro and the Demon. Well, if you've made, if you've made peace with that, I think we need... Just... Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right, fair enough. Anything to see Dan celebrate. Superb. <laughs> You're not getting um... a victory dance tonight. <laughs> yeah. So we've got Terry Funk with his prodigy Johnny the Bull. Maybe he's trying to injure him. Who knows? Maybe he's trying to inspire him. We've got Tank Abbott and his obsession, which is uh, scary, with free count. We've got the love square of David Flair, Daphne, Miss Hancock and Crowbar. We call it a love trapezoid instead. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you'll find it's Nicholas Reigns. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas Reigns. <laughs> We've got the Kiss Demon slash Vampiro slash possibly Sting storyline. And we've got the Filthy Animals cosplaying as um, Kidman and Landstorm. But a big honourable mention for that bullshit battle royal slash gauntlet. Like I said, that was my lowest point of the of the night. I was that just is... like, I don't get it. What is happening? I forgot to mention it before, Cam. If you do go back and watch any of the, the shows that we've covered... There's a couple of really high points that Nitro's end on. Like when Terry Funk was commissioner and he came out and branded Kevin Nash yeah. with a flaming branding iron. But there have been a lot of lacklustre main events. Yeah. yeah. The worries at this point is that they've recognised there's a load of lacklustre finishes and they've brought in John Laronitis to solely focus on the finishes. Mm. Yeah, no, but the mistake they made was they brought in John Laronitis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's another piranha in the tank, another mouth to feed, but no, no adding to the, uh, <laughs> the finishes. Yeah. What, what, 
what was it the man that's debuting tonight said uh, surrounded himself with bullshit yes men yeah yeah that's a fair comment so now it's time for an ad break there weren't many ads on the show Bash at the Beach is going to be sponsored by Masterlock what's Chris Masters got to do with anything we Chris Masters once photobombed a uh, a picture I was in at PCW <laughs> We'd met some people that we'd been talking to all night while we were at the show. It was uh, actually in uh, a nightclub in Leeds. I I hadn't been in that nightclub for at least 15 years, and it hadn't changed one shot. But we were taking a photo with these people and, you know, looked at the phone afterwards and Chris Masters in the background. I don't suppose you've still got that picture by any chance, have you? Uh, Beth probably does, to be fair. There's the thumbnail for the podcast. There was an advertisement for Joey's Ribs. And I'm counting it as an advertisement for Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as an, as an English person that's never seen Pepto-Bismol before, I didn't know it was actually pink. Like That, that, that threw me off. I didn't realise Pepto-Bismol. That, I knew like, the branding's pink and stuff. I didn't right, that, probably, that probably speaks to your level of health, because I'm well acquainted with Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely doesn't. <laughs> He's living uh, in a Rona house, Rob. Come on. I was going to say, I mean, Pepto-Bismol is in the UK and it comes in very handy. <laughs> like I said, I didn't, even know, I didn't even know they sold it over here, if I'm honest. But again, like you said, it probably speaks more about me than it does about the company. When well, you were saying, Dan, that you knew someone who used to put it on kebabs. What? What? Oh, no, someone said that. It might be Mags. I don't know. I'll, I'll clip that. I'm sure someone said that they knew someone who was cutting out the middleman and just putting Pepto-Bismol on kebabs. I'm, if I said that, it was as a joke at some point. Although I reckon you've definitely done it at some point. <laughs> I've ended up with stuff that looks like Pepto-Bismol on kebabs. I guess I've seen you in enough states to know that you've probably done it at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of shout-outs that we've had for the show, Horatio Max, uh, at Horatio underscore Max from the Love of AW podcast, um, said that he... Really enjoyed the Mind a Bonus episode. Thank you, Horatio. That was that was literally all Rob's doing. Well, y- you were on it, Dan. So in all I, I said about I said about seven words. Hmm. Uh, still counts. Dennis Waterman said about seven because I uh, had fast and loose with the copyright. <laughs> Mags at Podfather Mags said that the attention to detail of Big Vito's uh, wedding reception is the chef's kiss levels of awesomeness. Of the podcast. And I do believe he also went on to say something about the fact that me and Sarah were just both so bored by it, it was hysterical. Yeah, yeah, not in all fairness, but former guest on well, Max was a former guest on the show as well. Uh, former guest on the show, Danny at Scottish Juggalo said that uh, he was buzzing, waiting to listen to the show. Brilliant, yeah. A lot of former guests here because Sarah at Turd Ferguson um said that she uh, properly enjoyed recording the show with us. Always great having Sarah on, and I, I really can't wait, wait to listen back to uh, time of recording, listen back to Danny's episode. Tack at Tack Brown said that uh, it was another great episode this week. Appreciate that, Tacky boy. Thank you. Great thanks to Steve all this week because he posted a video of the Booker T section that we reviewed last week on the show that uh, you and Lauren said that you didn't know what not know what he was saying and he yeah. was last week's the episode. I, uh, can't thank Steve enough. I actually know what Booker said now. 
<laughs> Dan at Dan Not Daniel said that uh, he'd been looking forward to the episode with both Sarah and Danny. So thank you very much for that. Yep. Matty. Thank you, mate. Always appreciate the support. Oh, and God, Matty. Matty. Here we go. Yeah. Well, no, he shouted us out on uh, on his uh, Twitch stream the other day when I uh, came in. Uh, I think he normally gives you. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's pretty much par for the course at this point. We just give each other shit. Yeah, we got the usual shout out from the guys at Jofo in the ring. So thank you very much to them. Chris Bellis um, said that he'd been staying somewhere that didn't have any Wi-Fi, but he was finally able to uh, get back on and listen to the show. So uh... I do believe that I've heard rumours that Chris actually cut his holiday short to come home and listen to UTT. Uh, I think it's the right decision. I think it's the right yeah. decision. I think he's been trying to uh, get his other half to come on the show, but uh, I- I'm not sure. But uh, she is more than welcome. Absolutely. So now it's time for the award section of the show. So, Cam, as you're the guest, what would you give Match of the Night to? Match of the Night was, for me, the hardcore match between Terry Funk and Johnny the Bull. I just thought, I mean, yeah, it had the... The exhilarating, the most exhilarating highs Over, yeah. o- overall. Shout out to the uh, Hooventoon Ray versus Billy Kibben Lance Storm, but I think it just gets nicked for me. Super. Dan? Glad this is being committed to an audio recording because this is the first recorded incident of me agreeing with Cam. You say that every time you agree with me now, so <laughs> it doesn't yeah, it's, work. It's, it's like the tenth time you've said this is the first time. <laughs> it's never happened before. Never happened before. <laughs> yeah, Johnny the Bull versus Terry Funk. Because as I've said on the show before, I love me a bit of hardcore wrestling, love me a bit of deathmatch wrestling, and this was fucking brutal <laughs> for a lot of it. You know, just even. But I didn't mention it earlier, but the, with the standards and practices thing, Funk actually getting that level of colour. You know, getting that much blood, whether it was accidental or not, was unprecedented. And just the spot, the spot of John, Johnny the Bull fucking up, but then hitting from a standing jump, the top rope leg drop to the floor. Just, yeah, easily takes it for me. Yeah, that was insane. It was a really good match. Just to mention standards in practice, during the Jeff Jarrett segment, a character comes out called Galen Chandler to stop Jeff Jarrett's fat jokes. There was actually someone in Standards and Practice at the time who wasn't this actor that came out called Galen Chandler. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so they, they were literally, you know, sort of poking the bear to see if they'd do anything about it. <laughs> you can't get much more wrestling than that. Yeah, that's wrestling. Petty booking for the sake of it, but... Ironically, Standards and Practice did not cut that out of the show, even though they were using his real name. Oh, well. <laughs> I guess it's fine, uh, then. You see Max Caster's rap the other week on Dark. Well, Standards and Practice yeah. should have been around for that. Yeah. Basically said, COVID was a myth, lateral flow tests don't work, Simone Bal's mental health problems were bullshit, and the entire thing. They've cut it out of the YouTube rerun now, but it went through a number of people before it ran originally. And someone should have definitely got it. It was it was pretty grim. In that point, yes, it is Max Caster's fault, but it's also the editor's fault. Mm. 
And there must have been it's... so many people that went through, including probably Tony Khan, before uh, it reached YouTube. Well, Tony Khan claimed that he reviews all matches, but he just happened to miss that one. Mm, that's a shocker. The thing, thing is, it's a funny one, because while I wouldn't agree with anything, any of those points you brought up, because COVID is not a hook, I know that on a very, very personal level, you know, and the whole Simone Biles stuff and, and all of that, John Cena used to come out when he had his thug, Doctor of Thugonomics gimmick <laughs> and say all sorts of shit just to get a rise out of people. Don't get me wrong, you, you can go too close to the bone, which is probably what this did and went, you know, went beyond the pit. But I can kind of see what it was going for. Yeah, I just want to see what he's going for, but... It was just done in... It's... It was just... It's all very real. And I think for me, you know, if you want to, you know, wind up people by going on about COVID, whatever. But personally, for me, the comments about Simone Biles were the ones that stepped over the line. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've all had uh, at least tastes of, you know, mental health issues, all that. And then they're not to be joked about, really. It's um, a way to put it. Well, yeah, I am understating it slightly. (laughs) A lot. But. Actually, former head booker of WCW, Kevin Sullivan, said this week that Simone Biles is a hero for leaving the Olympics. Mm. You know, because, you know, people have given a stick for it. But if you think about it, people put for, in this case, five years of training behind it. It's the, the path of least resistance to go ahead. The fact yeah. that she the fact that she had, you know, the nerve to stand up and say it's more important to deal with my health than to, to compete in this event you know it must have taken massive guts mm. oh, absolutely when, when you're throwing away something you've worked four or five years for or a lifetime for she absolutely is, is a hero to be admired for for taking that stance mm. and for being willing to walk away and say i will come again i will come back and do this again although all i was meaning from what I said before was, I can see what they were aiming for from what you said about the Max Caster rap. Mm. But it was still, from by all accounts, badly done in poor taste. Yeah. yeah. And I'd just like to quickly shout out, I believe it was Venus Williams, it was one of the Williams sisters, who, when asked about Osaka's leaving of, was it the French Open, for mental health reasons, she was asked about it, and she said, well, for me personally... Uh, I've never got mental health issues to do with the press because I know whatever questions you ask me, I'm more talented than all of you put together. So shout out to Williams. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that. That's fair enough. These people with journalism degrees, eh, Dan? Yeah, wankers, a lot of them. (laughs) Especially the ones that put them into practice and make a career out of it. So... My match of the night would go to Hoobertoon Guerrero and Rey Mysterio cosplaying as Billy Kidman and Lance Storm. Fair enough. It's a good choice. Yeah. Four decent hands. So, Cam, what would you give your moment of the night to? My moment of the night, and now I was very much on a knife edge with this one because I thought as good as that over-the-top-rope springboard, leg drop onto the chair outside the ring looked, made even better by the fact that he thought, nope, can't do this, gonna have to save myself, landed it, and then did it again. But for me, the pop of the night came afterwards when 
Terry Funk nearly knocked himself out with a chair. <laughs> that was my moment. That was far and away. Like I say, like I say, banter wrestling is where it's at, man. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah. brilliant. That was brilliant. That was really good. Dan? Oh, there's only one moment of the night. I, I know I've spoken a lot about the top rope leg drop, and that is a very close second. Terry Funk hitting himself with a chair, very close third. Vampiro doing his disappearing act after the Druids was in for a look. But there is only one moment that can take this show. Only one moment. And it's a moment of such grace, beauty and dignity. And that is Tank Abbott having his own goddamn (laughs) dancing square. I thought you were going to be like, three fat ladies singing in the ring. (laughs) (laughs) I want nothing to do with Jeff Jarrett, so... We're bigger lads, let them sing, in the words of Mark Madden. And I agree with him completely. I, I will agree with Mark Madden this once. Yeah. My moment of the night is that moment with the Druids and Vampiro in the ring. The possibility that one of them sting. I'm yeah. not down for that shit. I really am. So, Cam, who's your MVP of the night? MVP of the night for me was, again, harking back to what was the close second, Johnny the Bull was MVP for me. For that one spot. Because I don't feel like I can give Terry Funk MVP for hitting himself with a chair. So uh, I'm giving it to Johnny the Bull. (laughs) Well, you may not feel like you can give Terry Funk the MVP (laughs) of the night. But I am. Because because Funk, at 56, 57 by that point, was still able to put on a match of the night. And one of the most brilliant unintentional bits of comedy we've seen on this show every time i see him on these shows just blows me away because obviously every show we watch he's a little bit older he's a little bit more knackered he's got another little injury but he still keeps going he's nearly 60 for fuck's sake in this yeah so yeah terry funk for me terry funk's great my mvp of the night though is going for tank abbott just the the malice behind being a three count stand that is training. Imagine imagine that character in modern times with access to Twitter. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I know people laugh at this version of Tank Abbott with three count. If this version of Tank Abbott was in WWE or AEW, he would be best character on the show. Yeah. Easy. And people laugh at it, and I, th- I think they need to take stock and think, well, if that's what you think was the worst thing. <laughs> Sometimes that's what's today. So, Cam, who would you give the René Goulet Award for Outstanding Haircut of the Night to? Now, I'd just like to open this by saying I don't get the reference, just for the record. <laughs> but, uh, that's fine, I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's only really one nominee, isn't there? And that's Corporal Cajun. It's definitely up there. He has an outrageous hairstyle. Just to say, René Goulet was a wrestler of the 60s and 70s. He went on to be, you know, a a backstage producer in the 80s and 90s who had effectively a ball cut. Right. Fair enough. I did did Google him and I was like, I just see a lot of pictures of very thin hair. But uh, (laughs) I was like, I I Googled him and I still don't get the reference. So I'll just bring it up on the night. see him at the end of his career with the uh, with the hair thinning out. One thing I'd like I mean, to say about Corporal Cajun's haircut, though, is this was the year 2000 and people are just now rocking that haircut in the past few years, so he was ahead of the curve. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Trendsetter. I'm giving my Rene Goulet award for outstanding haircut of the night to Vampiro and he's terrible with it. Dreads. I think they were dreads, yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing was, the Kiss Demon, well, Dale Tarbog at that point, before he got the Kiss Demon costume, he thought he was being handed it by Sting, but he had the Sting mask on and the dreadlocks behind it. I yeah. mean, you should have known that's not Sting. No, yeah, he had the hood up. Uh, yeah. But we also saw the other hooded druid behind Vampiro. Was yeah. that Sting? I think that was Sting. Yeah, that was the, that was like, the impression I got. Sting. That was Sting, that one. As someone, like I say, with no context on WCW, I was like, that's clearly Sting, in it? <laughs> my haircut of the night is the man that got berated by the crowd for having a mullet. It's Mike Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've given this award to Mike Awesome before. You can't say no, he's still rocking a mullet in 2000, for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's metal as uh, fuck, to be fair. <laughs> so, Cam, what would you give Sign of the Night to? I went quite simple with this. I'd like to give an honourable mention to the guy who had the Scott Steinerstein with the moving arms. That was brilliant, wasn't it? That was phenomenal, but I went much simpler, much more juvenile with just plain and simple, Tim is gay. I don't know who Tim is, but (laughs) he's gay apparently. (laughs) And more power power to him. And more power to him. (laughs) If that's who Tim is, that's absolutely fine, but well played, Tim. In the year 2000. To think Tim was holding the sign. Also, yeah. possibility. That's one thing. That and he was just saying, I'm Tim. That's, that's how he came out to his parents. Fuck the lot of you. We, we have talked before about Nitro being used as Tinder. You know, <laughs> maybe that's his coming out. Maybe that's his saying he's available. You know, contact me, gentlemen, if, uh, you know. Well, the alternative is that it's some sort of homophobic slur, and that's just very unpalatable. The ironic thing is, though, you know, 21 years later, we're on Tim's side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's your sign of the night, Dan? Right, it's time for the scroll back up my notes, because I'm too stupid and lazy to uh, go back to the top. Uh, in the O'Hare and Gingerack versus Misfits in Action match, there was a sign that said, Fortified with Vitamin BS, <laughs> which uh, really made me laugh. Because they, they obviously weren't uh, enjoying what they were seeing. I picked out one sign in the Johnny the Bull versus Terry Funk match. Somebody had a sign that said, I found the clitoris. <laughs> and all that was all that was missing was somebody behind them with a sign that said, liar. There was, uh, during the Goldberg promo, there was a sign that said, Brett, I miss you. And I just felt that on a personal level because I miss Brett Hart at this point. I saw that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody had taken the time to mock up a little sign of the uh, the Nitro logo, but instead of Nitro, it said Russo. Yes, yes, I saw that one, the Monday Which Russo. is pretty cool. And then the majority of the signs were all in the, that I saw were all in the three count versus Young Dragons segment. There was, I want to see Tank dance. There was three count, one count can't sing, two count can't dance, three count wrestle, uh, which I'm assuming they'd added an O to some of those and, the other one they were saying uh, they meant can't. Uh, so one cunt can't sing, two, two cunt can't dance, and three can't wrestle. Uh, there was a tank equals Lord of the Dance sign. There was a tank goes down for three count, or gets down for three count. And then there was a tank Abbott's... Tank... Going down are two different things, Dan. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, 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 I did what's known as the Ric Flair mix-up. Um, <laughs> and the, then there was a sign that said, Tank Abbott spanks rabbits. 
<laughs> and there was also a sign that just said MSWA, which means it's either for the Maryland State Wrestling Association, which I don't quite know why in West Virginia, or the Mid Staffordshire Wood Turners Association. I reckon it's that one. Yeah, um, I think so. And someone also had a sign that just said, I'm bored. <laughs> but I'm going to give it to one that you've already mentioned, Cam, and that is the airbrushed Scott Steiner sign with the moving <laughs> arms. <laughs> yeah, they put some effort into that. I appreciate that. A couple of honourable mentions here. There was, there was one for Goldberg, Don't Hurt Yourself. After <laughs> a load of, <laughs> no, load of bad Goldberg ones, wasn't there? <laughs> Dollar Goldberg. Yeah. He'd been out injured for months when he punched the window of the limo when they told him to wear sleeves, but he refused because he was Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, there's the irony of Oldberg signs in 20, in 2000 when he's yeah. uh, in 2021. Um, in a title match. <laughs> talking about people who don't come over well in 2021, there was a Nitro needs Ginetti sign. Saw, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> yes, I was going to bring that up, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to go with fortified vitamin BS. <laughs> it was a good one. It nearly made mine. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that. So, Cam, what would you rate this show out of 10? I'd give it a six if I'm being on the more generous side. I think it had its moments, but I was generally more more cringe than I was enjoying it, I think. Yeah, so I reckon, I reckon if I was being harsh, I'd say 5.5, but being generous, I'd give it a 6. Dan? Bless me, thinks 5.5 is harsh. <laughs> if I was being harsh for the show. I understand. It's just that I'm just remembering the week where Rob absolutely loved the episode and gave it an 8.5, and I hated it and gave it a 3.5. <laughs> We've done that vice versa as well, haven't we, Dan? <laughs> we have, yeah. Um, I just can't remember the exact ratings off the top of my head. I actually quite enjoyed this show. As we mentioned, a couple of bits haven't aged well. I thought they actually stepped up uh, some of the production elements. The lighting looked really good. The recaps were solid. Uh, Scott Hudson on commentary is always a delight, as is Tony Schiavone. Madden was there and was correct once. The, the still problems for me for the backstage audio quality. But... You know, it is what it is. It was still, still, those were the Madden's commentary in the backstage audio were really the only problems I had. The promos were generally fine uh, or, you know, above average. And same for the matches. The matches, which is actual in ring stuff, um, which has so often been a downfall for both Nitro and Raw, uh, I thought tonight was by and large decent. You know, even if the final gauntlet slash battle royal thing was so short and absolute clusterfuck. But obviously, we got Terry Funk. <laughs> which just stole it to me and you know and the same with the uh, the filthy animals and that whole tag match one slight downside was that a lot of the crowd reaction felt piped in i don't know if it was but it felt it it just didn't feel quite a few times i was just like looking at screen is it really just the hard cam people who aren't it participating in this just to give a quick rundown, the matches were just slightly above average overall, so five and a half out of ten. Uh, the promos were solid enough, so five out of ten. Production, I thought, were, apart from the two elements I mentioned, was pretty much like back to what we expect from Raws and Nitros, which was uh, an eight. The storyline stuff, just the stuff with the Demon and Vampiro, Funk and Johnny the Bull, even 
even the shit with Jarrett had a point, which, again, it goes back to what we've positively described as typically Russo, in that the vast majority of segments and wrestlers there had a reason to be on the show. There was just a narrative reason to be on the show. There weren't just matches thrown together out of nowhere. So it wasn't, but it wasn't the best. So I gave that a seven. And then the fan response, um, I've given a, a four and a half. Because if it was real, then it was fine. But it felt piped in, so I can't give it an average, you know, like a bang average, five out of ten. So I had to jot it down half away. But that averages out at, for the first time ever, me agreeing with Cam, a six out of ten. Superb. <laughs> And my tongue was most definitely placed in my cheek when I said for the first time me agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> see, I delayed on the laugh because I wasn't a hundred percent sure. If like, I was like, to see nobody's doing here. <laughs> <laughs> the best gimmicks are based in reality. Yeah. Yourself turned up to eleven. <laughs> in terms of the fan reaction, I think one of the problems that we get in this era of WCW is because there's so many dubs over the top we're not getting the real responses. And mm. I, I know you said on the last show that you'd been and checked if the uh, Cats music was a dub and you thought it wasn't. I've been and checked and I'm sure it is a dub. I'm sure it is different from the other one. But if, it is a dub, if it is a dub, it's very, very close. I think it, it is close, but I don't think it's the same one. It's the close but legally distinct version of... Yeah, it, it's not like the Jericho dub, which is completely different, you know, or the um, Sid dub or whatever. It is close, but it's not. But the problem is that takes away any of the crowd reaction under it. Yeah. Which, which isn't great, and I'd like to see that. I mean, I personally have given this 6.5. I, I gave last week's show a 6, and I, and I thought this was just a little bit better. But, you know, it's kind of very much in the ballpark with you guys. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I gave last week's show five, um, and I thought this week's was better. Yeah, I definitely thought it was better than last week. And there's so many stories going off this Nitro that I'm actively interested in. I'm, I'm interested in Tank Abbott. I'm interested in the Dale Tarbog, Kiss Demon, Vampiro, Sting storyline. I'm interested in the Flair, Daphne Hancock, Crowbar, Love Square, and... In, I, I know you guys weren't as old on it. I, I'm actually interested in Nash and Goldberg and obviously Terry Funk with the hardcore title. And I'm not sure there's that many promotions that I could ever say that I was interested in five story lines going off a particular show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so from that point of view, you know, even though I've given it 6.5, it's probably more of a, you know, the bingeability interest factor in there. No one's rated this on Cage Match. I will go and put my rating on when the show comes out, obviously. But in terms of wrestling data, I don't know if someone had worked out this was an episode we are going to cover or if someone's having a laugh. There's only been one rating and they gave it five out of five. (laughs) (laughs) See, I'd I'd assume that was you, Rob. (laughs) It wasn't me, but, you know, this was a very enjoyable show. Yes, the stuff that I want to see going on forward from this show, there was good bits. There were also some bad bits. There was, there's no way this was a perfect show, but it was no. enjoyable. It goes back to that. It's the distinction between what is a good wrestling show and what leaves you feeling entertained. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
my point on that, obviously, when I was doing my ratings at the start, I said in-ring was probably the most important thing for me to see a great wrestling match at the end of, even if it's absolute shite build, seeing a great wrestling match at the end is what I need. And I don't know if this is normal for Nitro or whether it's normal for wrestling as a whole back then, but one match on the entire card went more than five minutes. The rest went two or three minutes. Yeah. Is that is that normal? Yeah. For, the, for that area, yeah. Right. I, think... I just jarred with me. The one caveat I would say that the Raw that this goes head-to-head with, which I did watch just because of the ratings, did actually have some, some decent wrestling on, but the, that's probably very much the exception rather than the rule for this this period. Fair enough. It it just kind of jarred me. There was a total of like 20 minutes of wrestling on an hour and a half long <laughs> show. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, it's kind of like, whereas your sort of take on it is you're fine with whatever build as long as you get a good match. Mm. The theory behind a lot of these shows is the build is everything. The match doesn't really matter. Mm. And and that's what I at least I you know, I grew up with watching the Attitude Era. It, you know, WWF it was all promos and backstage and you got the wrestling, but you'd more often than not you'd get four minutes and then they're running. Mm, yeah. And stuff like that. But the soap opera element was there, the characters were there to keep you in on it. Yeah. And then, you know, once a month you'd get the pay-per-views and you'd have maybe you know, a few, a couple of good matches. Mm. And you feel like, oh, wow, these guys are really going for it. But then that all felt special. Yeah. That, the actual, the, the great wrestling felt special. Yeah. Because you'd, because you'd already had the, the entertainment side of things to draw you into it. Yeah. I mean, even now, WWE are very much a pay-per-view company rather than a weekly television company because that's where you get your payoffs. But... Uh... Yeah, I guess I got that. I guess well, I saw a thing recently comparing the um, the amount of actual in-ring action. I, th- I think it was on Rampage as compared to maybe SmackDown. Mm. And Rampage had more actual wrestling on it than in one hour than SmackDown did in two. Yeah, Smack- SmackDown's a show that has a lot of potential, but they need to chill out with the rematches, man. Like, Roman is carrying that show. He's awesome, and I won't hear anything else about it. I'm... Uh, I'm a mark for this Roman character. Oh, bless him, he's, he's finally reached Kane 2010 levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sick of seeing Big E versus Apollo Crews, and, you know, finally they're moving on, but they're giving us a rematch tonight of Shinsuke versus Apollo Crews, and just stop giving us rematches. Like, just give us a new match with an incredibly talented roster. An incredibly talented roster. Even if you throw it together with no build, give us a new match. I don't want to see a Big E versus Apollo Crews 15 times before you give us a pay-per-view, and then another five times before the next pay-per-view. Well, they're on the best of 7,533 series. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, if they build it as that, at least there'd be something behind it. But but they don't even yeah. do that. They don't say it's a best of 27 series. They just keep wheeling them out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's something that WWE don't get, or if it's Vince McMahon specifically that doesn't get it, that going 50-50 gets no one over. Like, putting someone over someone else, that the person who loses can still get over in defeat, whereas going 50-50 just makes them both look like losers, you know? Yeah. 
So I was just thinking about imagine a best of seven series, but all Iron Man matches. <laughs> well, that's what we're getting on Sunday night at NXT Takeover with Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly in it. It's going three and a half hours that one. Now nah, you're getting a three stages of hell match that's fairly bog standard. Yeah, it's going at least fifty minutes though, isn't it? It's probably going to go an hour. Yeah. If only it was in a triple cage like Which... the. No Jeff one seems... DDP, David Arquette match. <laughs> no one seems to be talking about it, but isn't this like just like a sheer rip-off of... And didn't Adam Cole have a very similar programme like two years ago? Was it Tommaso? It might have been Johnny Gargano, where they had a like a two out of three falls, and the first one was a standard wrestling match. And I believe Gargano got beat by DQ so that he could win the second fall. And then the third fall was a steel cage that had a load of weapons attached to it. I swear this is a total rip-off of something that happened two years ago. I think it was Cole Gargano. And the final spot was like, they both went off the top of the cage through a table in the ring. And Adam Cole's arm happened to be over Gargano. It might have been Champa. Takeover New York. Takeover New York. 2019, Gargano defeated Adam Cole in a two out of three falls match to win the vacant NXT championship. But the format was basically the same. The, both times the first fall is a just a straight-up wrestling match. The, th- the third fall for both of them is a steel cage match. If they come down with like weapons attached to the uh, cage, I'll probably pop. But I'll be like, they're like, hang on, this is exactly what happened two years ago. Oh, no, sorry, sorry, it was the pay-per-view after. Yeah, it was a singles match, street fight, barbed wire steel cage. Yeah. So I, I don't minutes. understand the logic of doing that was, the exact same thing again. That was TakeOver Toronto. They should do a Scottish rules match where it's the best of three falls. It's got rounds and you have to take shots on the odd rounds and dirt down pints of beer on the even rounds. <laughs> and the, should, and the, the third match should be for custody of Liam Thompson's sink. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would be 100% behind that. Sorry, Cam, you might not get that reference, but we'll tell you after. Although Baron Corbin is very much teetering towards the point where he'll be fighting for a sink, so I'm very much, much looking forward to that. So in terms of this writing partnership between Bischoff and Russo, obviously there's been a, a bit of problems. Three weeks ago they both went home. They've both been working from home for the last two weeks, um, nominally in creative. I, I think it's fair to say that Bischoff's idea of creative is looking at the big picture, like a storyline about the NWO, he's thinking, you know, three, six, nine months in advance. Whereas Russo's sort of focus on creative is sort of very much develop the characters and then see how they play out week to week when they interact with each other. Mm. So you've kind of got this tension between the two of them kind of already that they're completely looking at opposite ends of the spectrum Bischoff's looking at the big picture and Russo's there in the minute detail. When it comes to Bash at the Beach, Jarrett's defending the title against Hulk Hogan. Russo's idea is he wants Jarrett to go over in this match, but Hogan is saying, absolutely, completely not. That doesn't work for me, brother. (laughs) That doesn't work for me, brother. So Russo comes up with this idea. Hogan wants to win the belt then we're going to have, you know, people come down and attack him like Scott Steiner, etc. 
And then we're going to have Booker T, who was at this point the de facto number one contender, come out and challenge him. It's going to be a bit like WrestleMania 9. He comes out of the end, Booker T fights Hogan uh, and wins the belt. And they send John Laurinaitis to Hogan's house to try and sell him on the idea. Mm-hmm. And Hogan agrees to do it. And then on the Friday night, they get a fax from Hogan's lawyer saying that he doesn't want to do it. He wants to leave as champion. And Hogan has creative control. Hogan has creative control. So they're in a little bit of a bind here. So at the pay-per-view, they go out for the match, Hogan versus Jarrett, and Jarrett just lies down. Mm. Because, you know... Uh, it's kind of not taking Hogan's shit. And oh, Hogan, that one. Hogan cuts a promo against Russo. I mean, this has been prearranged that after the match, Hogan's going to cut an anti-Russo promo because Russo's the face of the new blood, Hogan's the face of the millionaires. And Hogan cuts a promo against Russo. Hogan and Bischoff leave. Now, just bear in mind, this is one hour and 50 minutes into the pay-per-view at this point. That's, that's something we're going to come back to later. After this point, Russo comes back into the ring and puts a scathing promo on Hulk Hogan. He calls him a big, bald son of a bitch. He says that, you know, the reason he's come back to WCW after taking his hiatus is for people like Booker T, who've been busting their ass for 14 years and never got a chance. He says that you may as well call the belt that Hulk Hogan's got, the Hulk Hogan Memorial title, because that title doesn't mean shit. And as far as he's concerned, Jeff Jarrett's still the champion. He's going to defend it tonight against Booker T. They go on and have the world championship match at the end of the night, Jarrett versus Booker T. Booker T goes on and wins the championship. That's the start of his five-time, five-time, five-time reign. That's the first championship he wins. Allegedly, Russo claims that after the show, Vlad Siegel says to him to not contact Hulk Hogan again because they don't want to... Use him again, he costs too much money. <laughs> um, 25% of the gate. Yeah, 25% of the gate. Just to put this in context, Hogan's contract was to work six pay-per-views a year. If we go on a rolling year, Hogan works Road Wild in August 99, Fall Brawl September 99, Halloween Havoc October 99, Super Brawl February March, worked on Censored. May, he worked Slamboree. June, he worked Great American Bash. In July, he worked Bash at the Beach. So he's worked eight pay-per-views in a rolling year, and he gets more money on top of what he gets if he, if he works more than six. Mm. So, you know, in terms of that rolling year, he, he's well surpassed that, that contract. Hogan is going to sue WCW for three reasons. He's going to sue them for breach of contract because of his creative control is going to sue them because they're not using him for the dates that he's supposed to be getting and he's going to sue them for defamation of character for the promo that Rousseau cuts on him and for he's a prick yeah and obviously I mean you can go and check out the court documents uh, the public record they're online sorry uh, so let me rephrase that in my opinion Hulk Hogan is a prick <laughs> it went to trial and it went to appeal Hogan is going to win on the breach of contract because the court's going to say that, you know, effectively, if you've got creative control, then half an hour later, someone makes Booker T world champion. That's not really creative control. 
Um, and they're going to say that Hogan's contract said he was he's booked to be in the main event, and obviously they come out later. And yeah, that's a court's judgment. That's legally binding, and I accept that. But at this point, they'd had a cinematic match with Vampiro and the Kiss Demon that was still ongoing, and the Nash Goldberg match hadn't happened, and Hogan is contesting that he wasn't in the main event. Well, why did he go out at that point? Yeah. Exactly. They find in WCW slash Russo's favour about the uh, promo that Russo cut on him. The court finds that Hogan knew about him cutting a promo on Russo. They find that he knew about the Millionaires Club versus the New Blood. They find that they knew that Russo was going to come out and cut a promo against him. Because it's all a documented fucking story. (laughs) And it's in the show format. Well, I mean, as the court says, there's a legal distinction between Hulk Hogan, the character, and Terrible A, the person. And... You know, Hulk Hogan, the character, was involved in this. So um, the, the court records are there for anyone that wants to read it. But the, that's kind of the results. I would suspect that, and, and, you know, several people have speculated that the reason that Hulk Hogan sued WCW at this point is he knew he was coming to the end of his contract. He knew he wouldn't get renewed. And this was kind of getting a last payday. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's Hogan being smart because WCW had a history of of settling lawsuits yeah like any any lawsuit that was brought against WCW they settled out of court but it just so happened this one went to court I'm assuming it was a particularly big amount that Hogan was after I don't know what the actual financial amount they got out of the settlement was by the way whoever it was in charge at the time whether it's Turner Media or the AOL Time Warner merge. I think it's AOL Time Warner by this point. I mean, this actually goes to car well after WCW is dead. They actually create a holding company oh, okay. just to deal with WCW's ongoing litigation. And they didn't actually close... I mean, this was sorted out relatively early. They didn't actually close the, lit, the book on all the litigation that's in against WCW until 2019. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. You know, with all the various suits that people had against them, so. Fuck it, that's mind-blowing. 18 years after the company was bought out and dead. Yeah. Still litigation. It's crazy. I remember actually seeing sort of on the, you know, sort of looking up on the day that it finally closed the book on it and thinking, that's just insane. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, which probably goes to show how well people's prospered when they uh, sued WCW. So Bischoff is obviously going to go off with Hulk Hogan. He's going to be putting in statements as part of this review. If anyone wants to waste a lot of time, it's probably good to go and look at some of those court depositions that are all online from Bruce and Bischoff and Hogan regarding this if you're legally minded so yeah bischoff's gonna go and uh, russo's gonna be in sole charge of creative for wcw for the next period well how'd that go <laughs> to be honest cam given given what we've seen and given the numbers we've seen over the course of this whenever russo or russo and ferrara have come into a creative opportunity they have either steadied the ship 
or increase the ratings. Really? Is that like... I'll send you the spreadsheet if you want. Rob has done a, a massive deep dive into all of this, which is what we work from. Yeah, just the facts are there. The numbers back it up. Whenever Russo or Russo and Ferrara have come in, they've steadied the ship over time, over a number of weeks, and then represented sometimes only a minor uptick. But in the case of WWE, a significant uptick to the peak of the Monday Night War. And I've joked about before that Rob only wanted to do this podcast to make Russo's involvement in WCW look good. <laughs> I can't make that joke anymore because he's right. Russo, <laughs> Russo didn't kill WCW. Russo, it was dead before Russo got there. If anything, Russo, Russo kept it kept it going. We've spoken about his agenda previously, but. That there's a clear agenda, and it's not just on the Meltzer side; it's on the WWE side as well. Yeah, it is. But Russo was part of the writing team behind the Reverse Battle Royale in 2006 in TNA. (laughs) The problem is, do you blame the person that is the head of creative, or do you blame the person that came up with the idea? We've said previously that the book stops with the head of creative. Yeah, and if that's the case, Russo was the head of creative and he deserves all the blame. I believe it's a Pat Kenny idea for the reverse battle royal. But I think the thing is that you have to say with that, if we're going to say that everything bad gets blamed to the head of creative, then everything good gets attributed to the head of creative. Yeah. If you're going to say that, then Russo is the guy that took TNA to 2.2 million viewers. And they're currently struggling to get 200,000. Mm. What, what are the numbers nowadays with obviously the AEW and New Japan integration? Obviously, they've got like Jay White and now Christian Cage. What are the I, actual numbers nowadays? I mean, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't really seen the numbers, but I think that's probably because they're so low or they're not. Really? Even, even, even still with likes of well, Switchblade? This is the thing, Cam. It's not massively needle shifting because uh, today, wrestling companies are vying for the same pool Mm. of audience members. If you're a wrestling fan, you're going to be watching these shows or you're going to be more likely to watch these shows. No no wrestling promotion at the moment is trying to engage new fans. So the crossover stuff with AEW, Impact, New Japan, AAA, whoever, great for wrestling fans. Mm. I love it. Why would your average person flicking channels give a fuck? That's true. Uh, it doesn't help as well that possibly in the past, what, 30, 40 years, the pool has never been smaller as well. Like, when was the time? When was the last time that Raw did a 1.5 million rating or Smack? Like I said, Russo got TNA to 2.2. That's what SmackDown does on a weekly basis at the moment. Like, the thing is, everyone says TV ratings have declined over time. You look at Doctor Who's ratings since it came back with the reboot, and it is clear that good creative equals high ratings and bad creative equals poor ratings because it goes up and down. You look at Line of Duty, that's on an upward trajectory for the entire run of the show. Mm. So people will say people are interested in different things these days and ratings have just been going down, but popular shows have been going up. Yeah, I mean, 
Well, here's the thing. Look at what was what was it that was the highest rated Raw segment of all time? Was it uh, Rock uh, Rock and Sock? This is your life. Was it ten point six, eleven point six million? Yeah. Nowadays, Raw's doing one point five. Like that's. Well, it was ten point six percent of the audience, so that's going to be thirty million. Uh, well, uh, a lot. Well, maybe that not. high. Jesus, uh, higher yeah. than I thought. Then three times higher than I thought. That's like, that means the viewership for Raw now is three percent of what it was then. In that case, like the pool of people that are wrestling fans, partially, and I think you've got to blame WWE's PG era for it because it became something tailored to the younger audiences, and the older audiences lost out. However, if you look at WWE's key demographic, it is actually. 55 plus is the yeah. highest demographic for them because they became tailored for kids. It was poorly written and the kids didn't want to watch it. But then the people, like I say, I, for the last possibly two years, I watched Raw simply out of a habitual thing before realizing this isn't worth three hours of my time. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that must go for maybe 30% of the viewership watch it purely because it's now something they've done for years and just never got out the habit of doing you yeah. know and then if you take away that 30 percent of habitual people you leave 70 percent of people that actually like i'm starting to sound like scott steiner now jesus i was just um, about to say you've got a 30 you've got 133 and a third percent chance of winning a sacrifice 70 <laughs> percent of people if it's, hypothetically and i feel like this is a high number 70 percent of people actually like it 70 percent of 1.5 million is like what 1.2 million that's barely more than we've seen on some episodes of dynamite i think the problem is though that wwe is the gateway drug for wrestling for a lot of people and if Yes, it's great the Dynamite are getting these figures, and you know I, I hope they get more. I hope every wrestling promotion gets more. I want more people to watch wrestling. I want more people to talk about wrestling. But if WWE were to fail, there wouldn't be the next generation of people who are going to become AEW fans. Mm, that's true. Mm. That's the problem, that AEW need WWE because AEW is catering to a slightly older audience base. They need people who've already been wrestling fans who become disillusioned to hop over to them. The other thing, going back to your Venn diagram, people see this whole thing of people who watch WWE being separate from AEW, and I think there's much more overlap than people think. There think, is. There absolutely is. I think there's a tiny sliver of AEW hardcores that don't watch WWE, and then the majority of the audience do. Yeah, I mean, my main issue with, I guess WWE as a whole, not just Raw, comes from, and like I said, I, I still watch SmackDown every week, I still watch NXT every week, sometimes I watch NXT before Dynamite, you know, like, it very much depends on my mood, I've, I've not, I'm not, I don't buy into the tribalism. My issue remains that you look at the rosters that they've got, and they are ludicrously talented, you know, whether that's you know, your mic skills, whether that's in-ring skills, whether that's both, whether, no matter what it is, whether it just looks like Bobby Lashley's... I mean, the man is, what, 52? Imagine looking like that when you're 52. <laughs> uh, imagine looking like that he's, now. He's, 40, he's 45. Is he 45? Still. <laughs> oh, oh, he's 45 then. I guess he's in fine age for a 45-year-old. <laughs> him, him and AJ Styles are about the same age. Exactly. <laughs> 
at the end of the day, the talent is purely talented, but it starts and it stops with Vince McMahon. That's where the issue in WWE lies. The man doesn't know how to stop, and for the good of the product, needs to learn how to stop. Obviously, there's all the rumours of the buyout coming in with all the releases over the past couple of years and the appointment of Nick Khan. But realistically, they don't have any issues when it comes to in-ring ability. They just need to let the wrestlers wrestle. It's funny, though, because everyone always has this image. And, you know, we're talking about a Russo episode here, Russo and Bischoff. Everyone has this image that when Russo was in WWE, Vince McMahon was the great filter. And he filtered the crazy ideas and took the brilliance. And that's what rose WWE to the top. But when we've seen Vince McMahon without Russo, the ratings have just gone down. And now we're in this state where we're saying that Vince McMahon is actively the person that's causing the problem. And mm. I, I have massive problems with that narrative. Oh, really? Because how on earth can Vince McMahon have been the thing that caused the success and now the thing that's causing the decline? I Honestly, I think... Dementia. Dementia was I, I didn't want to go Sorry, that I one of those. But <laughs> I think I think it's his age, you know. My, my my prevailing point with this is if you look at football, people will still say that Ronaldo is the best player in the world. He's proven he's not in the Serie A. He was, but he's 36. The man is allowed to get worse at what he does because that's how the human body works. It's the same deal with Vince McMahon. The man's what, 75, is he? 75, 76? No. The problem with this is that the only time that the ratings haven't gone down on Raw since Russo left is the summer of Punk when the ratings stagnated. Mm. So we've just seen decline, a six-month period of stagnation and decline. How does that... I, I just do not understand how that fits in with the Great Filter narrative. Well, I mean, I've said it before, Rob. I think what it is is this narrative got warped into McMahon being the great filter for Russo on the, as we've dis, as well, at least as I've discovered through doing this podcast, the common misconception that Russo and WCW was bad. I think Russo and McMahon had lightning in a bottle. They had a partnership whereby, yes, Russo was the head of creative, but Vince either gave him the right amount of leeway or knew when to step back. It just mixed. You know, they just they had a chemistry in the way that the ideas were presented where one pitched the idea to the other or Russo took an idea to McMahon and they could just somehow work together and get it right for that period of time. That's my take on it. It's not... Vince McMahon wasn't necessarily a great filter. There was more of a, a, a symbiotic relationship creatively between what Russo wanted and what Vince, and, and to be fair, what Vince wanted. They, they might not have agree, always agreed on how to get to the goal, but in the end, they always got there, almost always got there, and they had that golden period. Then they had the falling out. Or, uh, it was a... Was it Russo asking for bereavement leave? No, it was Vince telling him to get a nanny for his kids. Cause that was it. Sorry, that was it, yeah. And that was the end of it. So it's not necessarily McMahon, McMahon being a great filter. It's 
not necessarily Russo being a creative genius. It's elements of both that combine to make the, the golden era of Raw that we had. But then it Russo's gone off, shown either side of that sort of golden period that he can do bits on his own. And, you know, like I say, like I said before, steady the ship, increase it. But then he was always cut off at the pass. He was always cut off when it was getting good. Or wasn't allowed to fully sort of realise it or certain things didn't land, but they're not going to land in any creative, you know, not everything's going to land in every creative period. So, yeah, I think it was more of a symbiotic relationship rather than Vince necessarily being a good filter. It's just a myth that's been propagated over time because, as I mentioned before, history is written by the victors. No, it, it, Vince, it's all written by uh, him. <laughs> yeah. And I think Meltzer's played his part in it because his view of wrestling is complete. You know, we talk about the five factors. All of Dave Meltzer's factors are in ring. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. So basically what we're saying is that Cam is Dave Meltzer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually I mean, the biggest that's actually the biggest insult I've ever thrown at you, and that's saying a lot. I mean the man's <laughs> a top shagger, so uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, his whole room's dirty. Yeah. And I'd kill for his money. <laughs> <laughs> so Cam, where can people find you? I mean, if you really want, you can find me at CamWild52, but I wouldn't recommend following me because I very rarely tweet, and when I do it, I'm getting into argument with Q answers. So follow me if you want, but I wouldn't recommend it. I think I follow four people on Twitter. And I'm two of muted. them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's the one that's muted. Yeah. Wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> It's like I scroll through my feed every now and then, like, Dan has retweeted, Dan has retweeted, Dan has retweeted, Dan has retweeted. I spend a lot of time on the toilet, and therefore I spend a lot of time on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I, I follow well over 20,000 people, and I follow, I go through my feed, and it's Dan has retweeted, Dan has retweeted, Dan has retweeted. <laughs> That's just because you've got my notifications on. Where can people find you, Dan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm usually sat on the toilet retweeting random bullshit. Uh, I'll also be tweeting wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date and movies that are 25 years out of date. Yeah, come along, have a chat. We'll uh, we'll have a good time talking some bollocks about wrestling or whatever. I'll I'll talk about anything. Superb. You can follow me at UTT Rob. It's really more about the mutuals than it is about the followers. So if you, you want to follow, I'm more than happy to follow back and you might drown out some of the Dan retweets. <laughs> you can follow the show at, on Booking the Territory on any of your favourite podcast apps. We're also on that 90s wrestling podcast as well. On that uh, channel, we um, appear on the monthly pay-per-view reviews. We've just done WrestleMania 9, which happened. It, it definitely <laughs> happened. And uh, such was the... Um quality of Wrestlemania 9 that I forgot to plug that 90s wrestling podcast in my outro sorry James, sorry boss I, I, I don't know if this is a spoiler or whatever, I, I loved the theme of the show and the aesthetics that have been put behind it, uh, you can hear the rest of my thoughts on the 90s wrestling podcast so next week we'll be moving on to a time when Vince Russo's in soul charge of creative 
uh, of WCW. So that's going to be quite interesting to see where we've gone after this whole debacle at Bash of the Beach. So thank you for listening. Backstage in trash. told the cat to light up the ambulances, and I did exactly what I... Hey, you with the poster. I am not a mullet. You're the mullet, buddy. Hey, security, get out there. Take that poster away from him and get it out of my sight because I am definitely not a mullet. That is a good-looking hairdo. What's that guy with the sign thinking? Mullet. Mullet? Now, like I was saying... Just shut up! And now the mullet chant. Of course. Like people in Charleston, West Virginia are fashion experts. Or anything else for that matter. Well, it's a bottom-feeding fish found in the Gulf of Mexico. Past that. Tonight! Okay, I shot you, Stone.